2: Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk to Mohamed Jalal. You're most welcome,
3: sir. Dezakallah It's really a pleasure to be on your show, Paul. Alhamdulillah.
2: Mohamed um, is a, a lecturer in politics in London and hosts the podcast The Thinking Muslim. He delivers a regular uh, course for young Muslims exploring the thoughts of Islam and liberalism and is currently working on developing content on the same subject for the Sapiens Institute. He writes for numerous online uh, journals, including Traversing Tradition, Muslim Matters and Cage. And he's also the project coordinator at the Umatics Institute. And I'll link to uh, these below, as well as his uh, Twitter handle, because he's on Twitter. Follow him there, uh, J- Jalajin, sorry, Jalalin, beg your pardon, uh, which I will link to below with the correct spelling, hopefully. <laughs> um Today, uh, Mohammed, uh has kindly agreed to discuss his recently published article, which is actually particularly relevant, actually, to today, uh, entitled Moving Beyond the Left-Right Cultural Wars, A Dilemma for Muslim Communities in the West. Um, I mentioned it might be re- relevant because, obviously, in the United States, we have the uh, elections taking place uh, as we speak. And that's the epicenter, arguably, of the left-right cultural wars in the West. Yes. Could you um kindly summarise perhaps for us the main themes of your article?
3: Yes, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for uh, uh, allowing me to come on your show and, and to speak about the article. I'll flag up the article on the screen if if uh, oh, yes please. There we uh, go. If you would like to have a look at it. So yeah. I wrote this article after a, a number of weeks um, observing debates that largely took place on social media. And most of these debates do take place on social media and probably... Uh, not so so much in the real world. And um, I I presented it to Muslim Matters, and uh, they were very happy to to host this article. So the basic premise of the article is that um, Muslims seem to mirror in their debates uh, the culture wars that are raging in the West. So as you know, uh, we have, especially in America, the epicenter, as you said, of these culture wars there are immense debates about uh, what it means uh, to live a good life. What does the future of the American Republic even look like? And thinkers and activists on both sides, they argue that uh, America has gone beyond uh, its founding notions or that America uh, has to return back uh, to some of those classical notions that are embedded within the Constitution. And within that debate, there are a number of themes that uh, reoccur, themes to do with social matters, themes to do with politics and economics. And what I found is that Muslims, inevitably, we are a uh, an ummah that uh, today finds ourselves uh, in a in a very precarious position in many ways. Um, I mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but in, in many ways, we don't have a political authority like we used to have under the Ottomans the last caliphate, Uh, we don't have uh, global leadership, we don't have the type of cultural and political power that, say, the American state or the European Union has. And so over time, Muslims have have responded to and even emulated and echoed some of the uh, left-right arguments, uh, 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 left-right debates that rage in, in Western society. I mean, so one such good example of that is, uh, and I will talk about this in my presentation that you've asked me to put together. Um, in Dearborn, Michigan, there was a a great, you know, uh, a project by uh, Muslims, uh, largely of Arab uh, descent, who uh, wanted to show their disappreciation of the uh, the uh, uh, the inclusion of very suspect. Uh, sexual, uh, uh, sexually promiscuous, probably items in the school textbooks. Mm. Uh, so they attended a meeting uh, of um, uh, of the local school board, and it it became a a, a public thing, and, and everyone across the across America and probably the world heard about it. Mm. And uh, uh, what I noticed from that was uh, certainly the Muslims had a right to do that, and I would defend their right to. Uh, protect their children and to endorse their version of what it means to be a good Muslim and and we all want our children to be brought up uh, according to Islamic standards. But what I noticed in that that demonstration or in that meeting was that uh, there was uh, a relationship with the Christian evangelical right and undergirding that meeting, you know, beyond that meeting, uh, one of the themes of this culture war that uh, the Christian right or the Trump right or the white nativist right, you could even call them have have picked on are is is the inclusion of uh, of um uh, items in school books that are that are particularly problematic, right? Mm. And so I suppose my query was, look, we do have to uh, argue for our Islamic case, and it's really important to argue for our Islamic identity mm. but at the same time we shouldn't be fodder for any of the right or left-wing parties that want to use and utilize the muslim community for their own i would call them nefarious aims i mean on the other side of the spectrum you've got young muslims in particular in america but also here in the uk who echo left-wing uh, argument points and mm. Um, mm. they uh, are very happy to uh, sometimes adopt very problematic opinions actually when it comes to Islam on a range of not just social issues, but also economic issues, mm. and they're far apart, far away from uh, Islamic sensitivities or Islamic doctrine when it comes to these matters, but because they've uh, uh, echoed and, and, um, and endorsed and uh, uh, after a while incorporated the politics of the left into their own discourse, within time they may be practicing Muslims, but uh, they echo uh, a a way of thinking that I think would be out of sync with most of Islamic history and most of what is known to be of Islamic doctrine. I mean, mm. just to give you one quick anecdote, I, yeah. uh, as you said in your introduction, I deliver these courses from time to time uh, mm. to young Muslims where we talk about the thoughts of liberalism, and I, I try to sort of elaborate, okay, these are the thoughts of liberalism, and here's how we should understand these thoughts. I'm not telling you that you should bury your head in the sand and not engage at all with with Westerners a Western thought. I'm telling you that you have to be aware of these ideas and, and filter them according to the Islamic texts, right? Mm. So at the end of one, of su- one such meeting, a, a mother who had brought her teenage son along, and I think he was maybe 18 years old, so he's probably at the end of A-level study moving on to university, and and she was very concerned about the spiritual and intellectual health of her son. So she had driven. The meeting was in Walthamstow, and mm-hmm. she had driven from South London to Walthamstow to just specially to, uh, to you know to 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 try to find some guidance for her son because she felt that her son was moving in a direction which she couldn't quite put a finger on it, but was quite problematic in many ways. Anyway, I got speaking to her son, and the son was quite open to me. He said, "Look." Uh, I'm a Muslim. I've been to Islamic schools all my life. I went to uh, Islamic school right up to the age of 16. So he's not someone who's alien from uh, is- an Islamic upbringing, mm. uh, but I believe that Islam is my faith, uh, socialism is my economics, and mm. um, uh, liberalism is my my social stance. It's, it's what determines how I view society, right? And it, it got me thinking that this young uh, man—he was a very sincere brother. I'm not, you know, in any way trying to disparage, uh, disparage him, but he had fallen into a a trap, I suppose, set by uh, foreign ideologies, um, and he had incorporated ways of thinking into his Islamic identity, and yet he didn't see there was an ideational problem or a. a a, a schism between or a tension between what he saw of islam and what he what he gained from his ideologies and and one last point i i know uh, you would like to come back but one last point to mention for is that i find the same with those who have incorporated right-leaning thoughts within uh, their discourse so you get a lot of young muslims uh, and and you know muslims uh, beyond that who uh, who are responding to who want to respond to Uh, feminism and liberal ideology and and the excesses that come out of social liberalism, which we will talk about today. But the way they respond to it is they hook onto, they latch onto uh, right-leaning ideas, which are equally problematic when it comes to Islam. I mean, a few weeks ago uh, I interviewed Imam Dawood Walid, who you may know of uh, from the United States, who who has written a really good book about Islamic chivalry. And in that book, he tries to argue how young men have adopted either left-leaning um, you know, the new man, the modern man type of ideals, or right-leaning um, Neanderthal almost uh, principles, and they've incorporated into their lifestyles. And he argues, well, there is an Islamic tradition of how to bring up young men. And that position is, is uh, a, a position uh, which the Quran talks about. It's ummatan wasata. We are a, a middle ummah where we have uh, the types of sensitivities that are imbued in the early period of Islam in the Sahaba. You know, the Sahaba were. Umar ibn al-Khattab was a warrior in war, but he used to question himself in the most intimate ways about his intentions when the the Prophet uh, when it was revealed to him who the hypocrites were in Medina, Omar ran to the Prophet and said, Am I on that list? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, we would be, you know, we would find that uh, amazing for uh, a Sahaba who is blessed with Jannah in his lifetime, would would even consider that. But this was someone who was trying to, he was, this is a nuanced personality. So I suppose my point is um, that we as Muslims, we've got to recreate our thinking from scratch and not fall into these, uh, fall prey to these forces, either on the left or the right.
2: Mm. I mean, just on that very last point, um, there's a wonderful uh, uh, tweet, actually, that Justin Parrott, uh, the American scholar, um, uh, mentioned a a while ago about masculinity in Islam. Let's read what he says, just quite brief. Uh, Al-Shafi said um, manhood. Now, Al-Shafi, of course, is the eponymous founder of the Shafi. Madhab, the school, so incredibly uh, uh, esteemed scholar in many ways. Yeah. Uh, Shafi said, Manhood is based upon four pillars. So, in the light of what you've just said, is it the new yeah. man? Is it this kind of Neanderthal, uh, masculine guy? What are these four pillars? Shafi says, Good character, generosity, humility, and devotion. Okay, so those are the four pillars of manhood according to Shafi. And then Justin Paris says the righteous predecessors did not did not conceive of masculinity as involving alpha male or pickup artist behaviors. Yes. A true man in Islam is honorable to women, selfless, humble, and gentle, not domineering or abusive. Um, and then he goes on. Uh, it was said to uh, Al Naf Ibn Kays, who died in six eight seven um what is manhood and al anif said forbearance in a time of anger and forgiveness in a time of power uh and then uh, another uh, esteemed early scholar said the first part of manliness is a cheerful face it's the mm-hmm. first part of manliness, a cheerful face the second part is loving kindness to, to people loving kindness to people and the third part so Come on, now we must get the hardcore stuff. The third part is fulfilling the needs of others, yes. fulfilling the needs of others. So these are this is manhood, according to the earliest, very early, very esteemed Islamic uh, scholars. And this is Justin Power in his article, Custodianship of the Right Hand, Concubinage, Rape and Sexual Slavery, in inverted commas, in Islam, page nine for those quotes. And I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Justin yes. who talked about this. Yeah. Um, just a, a week ago. Um, but then I want to quote you, if I may, in, in, uh, just to summarise in some ways what you've just said from your article, by the way, uh, Moving Beyond the Left and Right Cultural Wars. And you say that young Muslims have, a, a uh, with a different set of priorities, have signed up to the left's promise of equality and fairness in the hope that they can find security away from the racism and Islamophobia that emanates from conservatives, you write. A trade-off is made, which camp will act in a way that best serves Muslims? But the trade-off, and this is the killer point here, comes at a high price. Okay, So w- whether we ally ourselves with the uh, so inclusive left or with the right, we've, uh, Muslims pay a high price. There's no natural cost-free home, politically speaking, culturally speaking,
0: in the West for Muslims. What's the easiest choice you can make?
2: Muslims, you're gonna get it. So you're gonna get it in the neck, one way or the other. So I thought that was a, quite a good uh, s- summary there. And then, then, another, just a very chilling one sentence you put in your in your article later. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a very chilling statement. In an era of in an era of muscular liberalism, this is obviously in the West, in Britain, and France. Yes. D- d- dare I say, it, in muscular liberalism, schools and university educators see it as their duty to unlearn a Muslim's attachment to Islam. Yeah. I mean, that is so chilling. It's almost like the mission statement of, uh, you say, schools and university educators is to basically... Um, subvert, another way of putting it, subvert uh, a Muslim's core allegiance to, to basic uh, Islamic doctrines, whether it be on uh, gender relations or sexuality or the place of uh, uh, intimacy and in marriage uh, and so on, and a place of religion in society even, um, which in the West is privatized. In a Muslim way, it's much more public uh, and has a public presence, of course. So I thought that was a very chilling and accurate, uh, sadly, statement of what's actually going on.
3: And and on, on that point, um, I mean, I'm an educator, and I know that it's not that teachers—it's uh, not like a you know the the mechanism by which that happens isn't uh, through I don't know some sort of Nazi Germany approach where uh, you've got uh, teachers who follow a propaganda or, or a government line. But actually what happens is through, especially uh, since 9-11, through measures such as PREVENT and British Values mm. and, and various other projects that uh, the Labour and the Conservative governments introduced within, uh, within schools, within state schools and universities, um, educators have become far more weary of just innocuous practice of Islam because they've been told this practice of Islam May be connected to extremism and that may be connected to terrorism. Can you give
2: an example of what you're because you're an educator, so this yeah. is not you've not read this in a book, you yeah. know this because this yeah. is your job. Yeah, what are we talking about? Yeah, good. Is uh, uh, it about prayer? Or are we talking about hijab? What are we yeah. talking about?
3: So uh, I sat through one of these Prevent meetings uh, one day, and and you've got to do it. It's a statutory duty of all educators that they've got to sit through uh, various meetings. And we had a whole day of it. We had Prevent, and we had I don't know FGM training. It was a, there was an entire day of it. Anyway, in the Prevent uh, session, um, the, uh, the 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 lady said, and if I uh, you know para- to fa- paraphrase her. You may get that a teenage student suddenly becomes withdrawn uh, and, and starts to uh, think quite differently about matters. So they may have a, a strong friendship group and then they decide that they're going to dedicate their life to prayer and they're going to uh, uh, exclude themselves from some friendship groups and uh, they may start to dress differently and they may even start to grow a beard. Now, and so she said, look, that may be nothing, but that also may be a sign of extremism. Uh, and so you've got to be aware of that. And a number of uh, fellow educators in the room. Uh, so, so looking Annie,
2: how, how, how does she think that growing a beard and having a life of prayer? Yes. Is anything to do with I, I, I actually generally don't see the connection. If someone yeah. starts to pray and grow a beard, in other words, practicing the sunnah, yeah. this is. Uh, a, a sign of, of, of excellence, uh, many yes. people say, because you're taking those higher values of God and, and and the afterlife and goodness and virtue and all those masculine virtues that Justin mm-hmm. Parrott uh, quoted from the early people here uh, about gentleness, um, he- you know, helping other people, uh, having a cheerful face, being good to your neighbor, You've lost me. How does yeah. she think
3: this is connected <laughs> to extremism? Yeah, that's a it's a very good point. Um, it actually comes from uh, I I I did do some research on this, and it it goes back to I think the first instance of this theory called the conveyor belt theory came from the Nixon Institute. It was a uh, a researcher or, or called uh, her name was uh, Zena Baran. And she spoke about how there is a conveyor belt to terrorism. So you've got a person who commits an act of terror, but preceding that act of terror, there may have been ideological and religious indoctrination that led to that act of terrorism. And so what they, uh, what she presented was this argument, and it was picked up by the Henry Jackson Society and, and other neoconservative outfits. The argument goes that um, a sudden or a... Or a, a form of religiosity may actually be a sign of extremism, and and so if you look at, I mean, I interviewed um, uh, a uh, someone from Prevent Watch uh, a few weeks back uh, on my on my yeah. podcast, mm-hmm. and she was uh, Dr. Layla Al and she was uh, she was saying that um, often most Prevent referrals are about these sorts of benign religious symbols or activities. They're not actually about someone saying, I've had enough and I want to bomb myself, which of course is unacceptable. Uh, They may make a change in their lives or they may show external signs of religiosity, and that's interpreted as a sign of extremism, right? Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I remember after that particular training on Prevent, one of my colleagues who's a very liberal minded person. You know, we got on very well. I've invited him to my house and we go out for dinner. And, it, you know, he's a very pleasant guy. But after he was so riled up after this Prevent training. He came into the staff room and he said something like, you know what, we just need to invade all their countries and turn <laughs> them into us.
2: We don't, we don't, I, he, he needs need to worry, we've been doing that for the last 15 years. <laughs> so I, I, he hasn't caught quite up with, with the news. Uh, we did it in Iraq and Afghanistan yes. and Libya. I uh, wow. um, suppose he uh, thinks that's still something that's recommended. No, I, I, know he, I, I know what you're saying. It, it just strikes me, you know, if anyone knows anything about Islam, it becomes very clear that targeting civilians uh, you know, with violence and so on is completely haram. Is mm. actually a category in Sharia. Uh, yeah. and it's, it can be punishable, uh, yes. but, but it ca- can be the death penalty. Terrorism yeah. is an a, a offence in Sharia. So to become more religious is actually ma- ma- will make you more anti-violence and, and, and more uh, attacks on civilians, if you were ever that way inclined in the first place, yeah. um, not less. Uh, so the Beven program, one could argue, and I think more powerfully, should actually encourage Muslims to become more committed to their faith by practicing the, the, their prayer, reading the Qur'an, Practicing the sunnah, not less. So uh, you could argue that um, not practicing and being more influenced by militant ideologies, which had their origins perhaps in a secular worldview, whether it be Marxism or kind of a revolutionary ideology Mm -hmm. that seeks to overthrow regimes uh, and you know go out and attack uh, people, um, that's the worry. Uh, Prevent should be encouraging Muslims to be more practising, more religious, more adhering to the faith, precisely to prevent extremism and terrorism. That Uh, would be my argument, therefore I know
3: but actually the government is moving in uh the other direction you've got the shore cross report which is due yeah. it's been due for some time actually yes. and um and, uh, it seems
2: uh, peter o'born i'm looking around at the book yes. uh, the fate of abraham he, he's he this guy this journalist yes. is so hot on this as soon yes. as it comes out god willing he'll be he said he'll come on blocking theology to give me give us Sometimes. all his take on this and i'm sure yes. it will be absolutely fascinating
3: well, the Shawcross uh, report. One of the key points. It was leaked to the Guardian newspaper a few months back. One of the key findings of Shawcross, the so-called research findings of Shawcross, is that it is to is to purvey is to uh, 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 convey this um, uh, conveyor belt idea, the idea that religious practice can lead to extremism, and so one needs to be aware of religious practice and. You know, it's what Douglas Murray once said that we need to make life as difficult as possible for Muslims in Europe. Mm. And I suppose what he meant by that was uh, Muslims should find that even in the most benign activities, wearing hijab, having halal, school, halal meals at school, for example, um, you know, pr- prayer facilities in the workplace, they should find that these things become uh, unobtainable for them. And I suppose the argument goes that by doing that, you're pushing Muslims in the direction of liberalising. You're pushing them in in our direction. You're you're, you know, they see it as a as a crusading endeavour to modernise Muslims, and of course we see it as uh, a a measure to to make life as difficult as possible for us um, uh, in the West. And and many European countries have adopted this method, as you know, in France and in Sweden. Uh, you have got be- a very muscular liberal state that, mm. um, that makes Muslims conform to uh, French and Swedish sensitivities.
2: Mm. I mean, I, 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 there's something that, that was missing from your article, and, I, and I, know, I think I know why it was missing, but I think, nevertheless, it was a, a significant omission. Uh, you, you say, for example, how we navigate the minefield that is Western political polarisation would we'll say a lot about the Muslim community. You write, mm. both the left and the right harm us and, more importantly, damage how we understand our faith. Unless we discover our distinctiveness, we will be co-opted into uh, this battle. Now, as that stands, I think that is a fair comment, but what's missing, and and I I want to push back on this, is any understanding Uh, that this very dilemma is being faced by other faith communities. For example, conservative evangelicals, traditional Catholics, Orthodox Jews, uh, who in London are quite a substantial community. I happen to know, having spoken to some, Um, that they face precisely the same dynamics the political dilemmas and dynamics that Muslims are too and the omission of this is understandable because there's a a paper about Mm. um, you know moving beyond left and right cultural wars a dilemma for Muslims but nevertheless we're not on our own there are other communities in the west that are facing exactly the same set of dilemmas and wouldn't it be nice sometimes and I know it's not it is there are problems in having alliances or looking to fellow uh, comrades who are on the same path. There are mm. issues with conservative evangelicals in America who are more often than not very islamophobic, maybe even racist, uh, mm. Orthodox Jews. well, that's a different subject. but you know even though theologically we're very, very similar, there are other political problems. But nevertheless, we're not on our own here. There are other faith communities, ca- Trad Catholics, traditional Catholics, particularly. Uh, even within the church, are having to deal with liberalizing forces, some would say even from the Vatican, uh, which are attempting to, to, to change the religion, to make it more uh, comfortable within modernity. You see this from the Church of England at the moment over the debate over uh, the so-called uh, same-sex marriage uh, uh, changes that that many in the Church of England are pushing. And recently, the Bishop of Oxford, a D'Arsonson Bishop, the very senior one, in the church of england publicly came out calling for so-called gay marriage mm-hmm. in the church to be uh, promoted and accepted Th- these are extraordinary challenges if you're a conservative evangelical even in his own diocese of oxford they started to push back and say look since when is it our job to conform to the ever-changing culture when mm-hmm. are we going to start bearing witness to the morality we see in these scriptures in the bible so um, it's a very long-winded way of saying we're not on our own. Others yeah. are going through it as well.
3: No, I, I agree, Paul, and I think that there are certainly uh, congruences with other faith groups, especially on these social matters, and and one needs to build and develop uh, alliances where our interests overlap. I suppose uh, one needs to be careful, as you quite rightly said, because some of these groups are heavily politicized and they have wider political aims. I think the Muslims in America, in particular. Uh, have to worry about the conservative right, and um, some within the evangelical uh, quarters who are pro-Zionist, who are uh, pro-Trump, uh, who ultimately believe that Islam is the enemy, uh, and may uh, uh, may convince us to have a temporary alliance with them in order to achieve their own nefarious electoral ends. Uh, we saw that uh, just before the midterm elections, where Muslims in America were co-opted. Into the rights um, political core in order to fight the social depravity, you know, in inverted commas of of uh, the liberal democrats, right? Uh, so I, I agree. I think there are overlaps, and and the last thing we should do as a Muslim community in the West is cocoon ourselves off and and believe that we can be self sufficient and not develop uh, any forms of alliances. If the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam, um, uh, gain protection. It's beyond an alliance. Gain protection from Abu Talib, his uncle, who was not a Muslim. Uh, and uh, Al Abbas, not, you know, these are people who are, uh, who are uh, acting in good faith, who want to uh, uh, defend uh, the Messenger wa sallam, because they can see that uh, he's an honest person and he's not someone who ultimately wants to harm uh, their societies. Uh, then we need to f- reach out and certainly find people in the West. Uh, who may agree with uh, our views, or may have uh, may have uh, moral standpoints that allow them to uh, to help the Muslims. I mean, I mean, as, as a quick aside, uh, the group CAGE, I think, does that very well. Um, when it comes to the securitization of Muslims, they do establish very strong links with the civil liberties world. Many of them may even be liberals and socialists, right? Mm. Um, uh, but CAGE have very clear red lines. They know where uh, that alliance has to stop. And there are some issues they're not going to entertain. And actually, they earn respect as a result of that. Yeah.
2: And it's interesting. You, you mentioned this about. about uh... The, the uh, Professor Um Ali uh, Abdullah Ali beg your pardon from the mm-hmm. Zaytuna Institute, yes. uh, in uh, California, who I have the immense privilege of speaking to several times on blogging and theology. Um, I kind of discussed this with him, and he has personally gone into uh, Republican areas. I mean, he, he mm-hmm. makes a distinction between the official uh, line the Republican Party, the Trump campaign, and so on, which obviously could be very problematic. But yes. but he said the Republicans he's met in rural parts of America, Republican voting. Christians, evangelical Christians. And he, um, Professor Abdul Ali, happens to be a black man himself. Um, He's a a, a Muslim, obviously. He's an expert on Islamic law. Um, But he has found uh, most of the time, vast majority of the time, very positive personal responses from these white conservative evangelical republican trump voting people when yes. you speak to them and you approach them and you, and you share these concerns they're not evil they're, they're not nefarious they, these are not bad people these are mostly decent people mm-hmm. um who when you speak to them when he's spoken to them he, he's actually found uh, many areas of common commonality and co- common concern uh, and and bridge building potential. Now I'm not saying therefore the Republican Party is fine. I'm not drawing that, but he, he he's making this kind of dichotomy between the official um, rhetoric and the the ordinary decent people on the ground that he has met that he feels uh, as as someone who does uh, uh, Professor Abdul Ali. I mean, uh, has uh, co- makes makes connections with the traditional right. I think in discourse in America, and and he has found uh, some significant. Um, avenues of, of uh, alliance and rapprochement in his experience
3: I, I think that's the case for the right and the left um i knew a very good brother uh who converted to islam many many years back and i asked him as you do when you meet a, a new muslim uh or a convert you know what brought you to islam and he said actually the original he was from the left he was someone who had socialist sensitivities and he said the original uh, uh, impetus to becoming a Muslim was economic justice. I read about the Islamic economic system mm. and I just found it to be uh, truly profound and yeah. I found it to be a better form of justice than what I had imagined to be the utopia, socialism. Mm. Um, so I, I think you can find that across the board uh, in as long as we, we enter those debates as uh, as sincere Muslims who want to carry Islam and, and not get uh, and, and one needs to be politically astute and be aware of uh, the political machinations, I suppose, of these political parties and how they act towards a Muslim community. Yeah. Um, but as long as one does, one has that in mind. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, in fact, that's the message. How are we meant to carry mm. Islam if we're going to cocoon ourselves off? Um, you know, I, I remember a long time back actually when the Malcolm X film came out, there was a friend of mine who, again, another convert to Islam. Uh, he was distributing a left-wing, he's a white white Muslim, he was distributing a left-wing uh leaflet outside a Malcolm X event, right? About how uh, white men are uh, are evil right so he's a white person mm-hmm. but he's distributing a leaflet you know which echoes the 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 radical ideas of the black panther movement or you know the radical right, right. Right. so um, and and this brother happened to be at that meeting a muslim uh, happened to be at that meeting and and he met him outside and he said look let's sit down and have a discussion about mm. these racial ideas and in one meeting this person realized how ludicrous that proposition was that all white men are evil, and uh, he embraced Islam that night, Right, wow. and he was from the radical left. Um, mm, so mm. I think equally we can find, because certainly Islam is a deen of fitra. Islam mm. is a deen that is the most compatible with human nature, and I suppose our job, Hamza Zotsis talks a lot about this, our job really is to present Islam in a way that uh, directs that person to their human natural instincts. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
3: and, and we can do that in a variety of ways. No, that's very good. Uh, I think another thing in in
2: your uh, article, which I'll um, link to uh, in the description uh, below, okay. this is uh, uh, moving beyond the left-right cultural wars, a dilemma for Muslim communities in the West, well worth reading. Um, another thing that perhaps was missing, uh, and again, uh, it's unfair to ask you to <laughs> cover every possible base imaginable, but nevertheless, I'm going to say it anyway, um, is, is the sense that uh, the Muslim community in Britain and in the United States is part of the larger Ummah itself yeah. globally. Yeah. And, and that Muslims in America, particularly, are the tiniest fraction of the Ummah, um, you know, unbelievably marginal in terms of the, the Ummah uh, around the world. But because they happen to reside in the epicenter of the world's superpower, United States, uh, arguably, well, I, I would say arguably, they take on an outsized significance yes. uh, in terms of well, what are you know what are Muslims in Minnesota thinking or Chicago or Virginia or L.A. You know who cares? Well, you know, well because they're in America, that's why we care. But mm-hmm. we, are we listening to what Muslims are saying in Calcutta so much or in downtown? Um, you know wherever in Australia mm, not really but in America we must worry what they're saying but but of course that's a distortion is it not and and is, is there this sense of being a part of an ummah missing I don't mean from your article but mm. in, in America's Muslims consciousness I mean particularly in America, Muslim consciousness and also perhaps even more controversially it's something we're not really allowed to talk about very much, uh, dare I say it in public, um, the, the, Well, you, t- you touched on it at the beginning, actually, and that is the caliphate. You mentioned exactly 100 years ago, the Ottoman uh, caliphate was abolished, and we had the right. beginnings of the Turkish Republic and Mustafa Kemal, etc. Um and, and that's had huge ramifications for the Muslim world. For the first time since the Prophet himself, upon whom be peace, the Muslim Ummah have not had a caliph, an imam, a leader, a single leader to lead them on hmm. and what about the role of the re-establishment of the caliphate now this is a huge subject you may want to go into it. a different subject <laughs> but and, and there are hadith that speak of this it's not just me fantasizing that hmm. actual hadith go back to the prophet that speak on this very subject but it was the the larger umatic context firstly and secondly the absence of the caliphate and the impact that has had on these very issues where muslims are Trap, not trapped, but very much looking within their own individual nation state, this post-Westphalian European construction that mm-hmm. were British Muslims. Or were, no, were American, were French Muslims, that a sense of being, were Muslims as part of the body, the Ummah, which is found all over the planet. And what does that mean for us politically in terms of our engagement with anything?
3: Yeah, Uh, I mean, that's a very, very good point. And um, I I agree that uh, that wasn't an an omission from the article. And uh, in fact, if I can, I can I share um, a slide which I have, if you, uh, this is from an excerpt from uh, Ibn Khaldun, uh, who, of course, is a famous historian sociologist who uh, wrote about um, uh, societies in his era and, and, and also uh, how societies progress, and and um, really was a a gra- it was a, grand pre- uh, a groundbreaking piece of work when he when he wrote about uh, about this subject. Now Ibn Khaldun talks about the vanquished always want to imitate the victor in his distinctive marks, his dress, his occupation, and all these other conditions and customs. And he says the reason for this is that mm. the soul always sees perfection in the person who is superior to it and to whom it is uh, it is subservient. It considers him perfect, either because the respect it has for him impresses it or because it erroneously assumes that its own subservience to him is not due to the nature of defeat, but due to the perfection of the victor. If that erroneous assumption fixes itself in the soul, it becomes a firm firm belief. The soul then adopts all the manners of the victor and assimilates itself to him. Then uh, This, then, is imitation. And then he goes on to talk about how human beings, when they imitate the conqueror, how they become uh, consumed within the cultural milieu, uh, cultural uh, sensitivities of that of that uh, of that conqueror, until they adopt all of the mores of of uh, those societies. And I think it's a very similar thing today. We, mm. unconsciously sometimes, we have adopted. The thoughts and the ideas that come out of uh, Western capitals, and as you quite rightly said, the reason why Muslims are fixated sometimes on American Muslims is because we're fixated on America. Mm. America is the epicenter of cultural globalization or at least it was before this mm. more rocky period of deglobalization. We know that uh, uh, you know out of America comes the uh, comes all cultural trends, but also economic trends. I mean most of the uh, the biggest companies in the world come from uh, the United States, and so inevitably mm. uh, the United States becomes that place, that center of, of our thinking and our discourse. And as you said, it's very problematic, and it's certainly problematic for American Muslims. Um, uh, I interviewed Mobin Vaid, uh, who's a mm. very uh, astute commentator, I think, yes, on American affairs, mm. uh, just this last week for my for my podcast. And um, he was talking about how Muslims in America do feel themselves somewhat away from this ummah. And ah. they don't have, I suspect it's it's partly because of the success in inverted commas of the liberal project in America and how uh, many Muslims have have embraced uh, the thick values of liberalism that that accompany migration, uh, as opposed to say European Muslims, uh, you know, we we do feel the uh, in in inequalities that exist within our societies, especially you know Muslims in in places like France, and so there is this deeper connection with the Muslim Ummah, I find uh, in Europe than say in America or Canada, and, and maybe that's to do with the integrationist project in, in those respective countries. But what I would say yeah. is that um, uh, certainly the connection to an ummah is extremely important and mm. certainly this ummatic sensitivity has to be built into our tarbiyah, to our schooling process. Um, it's not enough just to teach the Quran and Sunnah, of course this is the most important thing to teach our, our children. But the Quran and Sunnah imbued within the message of Islam is the concept of an Ummah. The Prophet said, you know, that person who does not wake up in the morning thinking about the affairs of the Ummah is not one of them. And and that shows that, you know, every Muslim needs to have this belief that they are connected to a wider Ummah and uh, the, the problems the Ummah faces, they face uh you know and as the prophet Ali said we are like one body and to speak to your caliphate point i think that's extremely important i mean i would direct your viewers uh, to i know you've had him on your show uh dr Mir Anjum, uh who i think uh, is really he speaks very eloquently about the need to uh, mm-hmm. to reestablish the caliphate and i i think there's a, a lot uh, he talks about that Muslims need to need to really understand, and I know he's doing. That
2: point, I, I mean, you could just to clarify on that point about the caliphate. I, I actually don't know the answer to this, although I can yeah. guess the answer to it. You mentioned earlier on about prevent. This is the uh, mm. British um, counter extremism, counter terrorism program. It's uh, by statute, by law, mm. uh, that that everyone in the public sector, teachers, civil servants, police, whatever, have to abide by and go through, uh, and all that stuff. Would you do you think that, um, it, it, uh, just even the idea of the caliphate would that trigger a prevent referral? Do you think <laughs> it, if, I, if I was an 18 year old lad in doing my A levels at a sixth form and I and you, you know a teacher heard me talking about the caliphate, not, not in any you know yeah. ju- malign, not, uh, yeah. you know, you, you just said to yourself that the prophet himself said, you know, you know one body. Is that going to trigger a response, uh, a referral to prevent, do you think?
3: Well, certainly do. And I have an example of that. I I once met a colleague who said to me that um, they were talking about at that time, ISIS was an issue and they were talking about uh, Islamic states. Right. And one uh, child, he must have been 14, 13, 14, sort of uttered, you know, half uttered. uh, I think the uh, the. The teacher, it may, be, it may be in a religious studies lesson, the teacher said, look, some say there's not an Islamic state anywhere in the world today. Like, he was trying to uh, argue that the ISIS was not, their claims to caliphate were, were erroneous, which we agree with. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this student muttered, uh, uh, well, we don't have one yet. Uh, and um, that was yeah. enough to trigger a prevent referral.
2: Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming. We, do we know what happened? Uh, subsequently?
3: Yeah. Well, 95 uh, percent breaking
2: any confidences, of course.
3: Well, 95 percent of all prevent referrals go nowhere. Um, and and the five percent that do go on to the next stage uh, often end up going nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can argue that, e- that probably one or two percent of prevent referrals are actually anything that's remotely serious. And And when we say remotely serious, it's probably not even terrorism. You know um so and and these people end up uh being channeled into things like mental health services so if 95 percent of prevent referrals are go nowhere they uh, a prevent panel looks at uh, the case and then decides no further action is necessary that tells you something about uh, what the intentions are behind this prevent project the intentions are not to uh, catch out potential terrorists because as we know that's just an erroneous idea that there is somehow a uh, a conveyor about to terrorism you start with salah and then you end up with suicide bombing that just makes uh, very it, little sense It's the
2: other way around the more yeah. you practice your salah the less uh well, dangerous and more well, exactly. good neighborly and so on you're going to be but anyway yeah.
3: well yeah. so so i would argue prevent is a program of social engineering it's a way to uh create a situation in a muslim community where muslims fear uh uh, subjects like the Caliphate, they fear it, talking about. A, isn't
2: it a contradiction in what you said? Just, just to be polemical yeah, for a second, please. Um, you said that this guy was referred to prevent. That's what I expected you to say, obviously. Yes. But then you said ninety-five percent of these referrals turn out to be hot air and yes. have no further action. Yes. But doesn't that prove the opposite of what you're claiming? That in fact it's not the interest of they're not interested in prosecuting and, and problematizing these because they're not taken any further. If they, ah. if they were seen as problematic, then they would be taken further, and we would see consequences uh, of the next stage because this person believed mm-hmm. in the caliphate or prey or growing a beard or whatever.
3: So, so this child, let's call him Abdul. He was—I don't know his name. Uh, this child probably went back to his community, and his parents said, "What happened? You know, why did you, why did you get referred to this panel? What what went wrong?" Uh, and he said, "Look, all, all I said in the class was." Uh, you know, there is no Islamic State today and and that was enough for me to be referred to prevent and the parents would say to the child Don't ever talk like that again. Don't ever speak about this subject again, mm-hmm. right? And so within time if you think about one prevent referral, I mean in a year There may have been six or seven thousand prevent referrals Think about one single prevent referral and think about how many people that's going to affect in wider society and so within time communities and mosques and madrasas and islamic conferences and institutions they decide that it's probably in their interest to not talk about matters of islam that may be contentious in wider society so that's why i say it's a project of social engineering it's a project to silence us and to uh, and to take away from our discourse aspects of islam that they uh, want us to uh, to omit from our from our understanding, and that's a very dangerous place to be because within time, the next gen if the first generation self censors, the next generation is going to go beyond self censoring and embrace mm. uh, ideas and ideals which are contra- contradictory to Islam. So it, you know, in a sense, there is a link between this and our, and the topic of discussion today. You know, if you disarm the Muslim community and you take away its ideational character, then you you open them up. To liberalisation, you make it possible for that community uh, to embrace the thick values of uh, of, of the West. It's what mm-hmm. Will Kimlicker, who is a, a Canadian multiculturalist, talks about when he when he makes reference to uh, liberal multiculturalism. And multiculturalism is a fascinating topic. And your your, list, your viewers may, I mean, Bhikkhu Parikh is is a very interesting. He's a Hindu. He's a Lord in. He's a Labour Lord. But actually he talks a lot of sense when it comes to multiculturalism. Will Kimlicker is a liberal multiculturalist and he argues that, look, he's got a different perspective, by the way, than sort of the modern muscular liberalism. His point is, if you make Muslims or other communities feel comfortable in the West, within time you will disarm them so that they would embrace the, the very democratic and liberal ideals we want them to embrace, right? So his method... To, uh, to the embrace of liberalism it is through this steady and gradual process of making them feel comfortable whereas the modern muscular liberal approach, the, the approach that uh, David Cameron uh, announced back in, uh, back in yeah. uh, the coalition government is to, is to sort of turn the screws ever so more, is to make it far more difficult for Muslims uh, to voice uh, their Islamic opinions publicly
2: Okay. Um, sh- shall we uh, go on, perhaps, to your presentation, which has been slightly uh, delayed by my endless questions. Okay. Apologies. Um, right. Liberalism and conservatism: a timeline.
3: Yeah. So um, uh, y- you asked me to uh, to put together some uh, some wider ideas, or wider thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, or my thoughts about where we find ourselves today. Now, b- blogging theology. I think the thing that makes your your channel stand out is. Uh, you don't uh, shy away from uh, addressing depth and addressing intellectual depth, and I, I really think that's a that's a wonderful thing. I mean, often in uh, the Muslim social media and and sort of the broader dawa sphere, we find that often depth is compromised uh, mm-hmm. for um, for sound bites sometimes or for very quick responses because, of course, we all have very short attention spans. And um, I I, uh, I was thinking about how do I uh, so so the idea is, uh, how did we get here? We are, you know, myself at least, not yourself, Paul, but we are migrants to, to the West and uh, uh, we uh, our parents had to uh, flee their countries for economic reasons or, on the most and sometimes for other reasons and they end up in Britain or end up in America or France and uh, they find themselves having to deal with uh, the... Uh, the types of uh, discourse and the types of discussions we've just we've just spoken of, where uh, they have to try to navigate this minefield of both left and right thinking. Now, I always say to my students, before we get to the present, we have to understand the past.
1: Exactly. And
3: that means we have to take a, a, a dive into Western political history, and we have to understand what brought the West to where it is. So that when, we, uh, when we're able, so that we, we get a better appreciation of how to navigate this current minefield. Now, when we talk about uh, the history of Western thought, we can go back centuries. We can go beyond the 16th century, where I start here, and the Protestant Reformation. We can go back to Greek philosophy, for, for example, and, and discuss the thoughts of Plato and Aristotle and how they inform uh, modern day thoughts, in particular to do with democracy and, and individualism. But I would like to start, and, and certainly there is a discussion to be had there, and I know, Paul, you, you have given presentations in Istanbul and, and, uh, and elsewhere about this, but I would like to start uh, at the Pro- Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther, uh, of course, in in the early 16th century, uh, because I think this was a seminal moment in European history, uh, because it it broke the stranglehold of the Catholic Church. But in a wider sense, it uh it allowed for it enabled a process of what becomes known as secularization in Europe. Now, how does it? How do we get there? Well, Martin Luther uh, objected fundamentally to the power of the Church of the Catholic Church and some of the practices of the Catholic Church. For example, selling indulgences, and you, you know more about this than than I do. And um, he took a stand and he argued that uh, that uh, we need to move beyond uh, the fakery of the Catholic Church and, uh, and I suppose, reinstall uh, the essence of what Christianity was from the days of, of uh, Jesus, from the days of Isa a. And so in 1517, famously he was, and maybe this is apocryphal, uh, he, he wrote his objections and he nailed it onto a door in Wittenberg in modern-day Germany, uh, and the rest is history. Um, it, it creates an almighty um, uh, schism within uh, within Europe and and some say uh, the Protestant Reformation in many ways led to the the, the greater enlightenment and led to the uh, the uh, channeling of ideas uh, that lead to the embrace of liberalism in Europe now there are connections there that we can make but what I would like to focus on is uh, what happens in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, and there you get uh, immense conflict between kings and princes who adopt the Protestant faith, the new Protestant faith, and those who adopt uh, who, who who continue the Catholic faith. And uh, as you know, after 1517, you had the Hundred Years' War, and then after that, you had the Thirty Years' War, which were essentially religious conflicts, which yeah. uh, uh, which were they you were know, religious conflict, but they had a very strong political dimension to them and um uh, the Treaty of westphalia sixteen forty eight is a really important moment, and I think it's downplayed for whatever reason in um in, in european history. When i mean i visited Westphalia and uh, hoping to find some sort of memorial to the Treaty of West, and there's very scant really? uh, you know the, the discussion about this treaty and what was the Treaty of Westphalia? Well, it was the culmination of the Thirty Years' War, where, of course, the bloodletting between Catholicism and Protestantism led to uh, the princely states across Europe uh, concluding that some form of peace needed to be signed between these states. And out of the Treaty of Westphalia, actually, there was not one single treaty. It was a it was a series of treaties. But after the Treaty of Westphalia, um, what came out of it was the birth of the modern nation-state, the idea that nation-states and state sovereignty is inviolable. And so uh, the, the, the principle that came out of it was that if you are a Catholic state or a Protestant state, what you do internally is no matter, is not a problem for us. It's rather how you relate to us, in your external relations that matter. Mm. And so, from the seventeenth century, mid seventeenth century onwards, uh, these European states developed uh, the idea of the the state system, the idea, and and that developed into international law, and it developed into the principle of state sovereignty, which is still around today. If you think about yeah. the whole principle of the United Nations, the UN Charter, it's premised on the idea that that the the rights of states are inviolable. Now, of course. Before the 17th century, we had the era of empires, and actually, during that period of Westphalia, uh, I remember reading a Muslim account of Westphalia because, of course, the Ottomans uh, were in their ascendancy in the 17th yeah. century. And um, uh, I remember reading, uh, excuse me, it was either from the Caliph, the Sultan, it was from or it was from one of his advisors, but the uh, the the commentary suggested something uh, suggested the following: look we are one state and we are strong. You're going to divide yourselves up into many multiple states and you are wow. weak, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so there was this derision, I suspect, from uh, the Muslim quarters that um, Europe was tearing itself apart, similar to, by the way, how mm. they look at the Muslim world today. Um, yeah. When, when, uh, uh, when uh, Western commentators uh, point to the Muslim world, they scoff. At uh, the, the divisions of a sectarianism, the lack of, uh, of uh, moderation, the lack of modernity in our world. And I, I think there was a very similar thing in, in the Muslim well, world. You say they
2: scoff. I mean, the, the head uh, uh, foreign affairs diplomat in the European yes. Union, I forget yes. his name, just yes. a week ago um, came out with a delightful metaphor. He said, Oh, we <laughs> in Europe are like a garden, a well ordered yes. garden, and outside of it is the jungle. Yes. <laughs> Yes. i mean uh, he actually said that this is the european union's like uh, foreign secretary his chief the chief diplomat yeah, yeah, came yeah. out with a very undiplomatic statement yeah. i would argue and boy did that did that set the uh, the pigeons racing but um so j- just to mention that that this idea that you just described is very much a lie within europe
3: well it is and 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 by the way you know many european union um uh, parliamentarians uh, do often cite Westphalia. Uh, when it comes to for example turkey's ascension to the to the wow. european union because their argument is that europe is superior europe in fact you know th- there's some discussion about how much of what happened in europe in particular the treaty of westphalia was a response to what they saw as the enemy outside response to the the ottomans and and uh, their um uh, their ascendancy during uh, mm-hmm. that that period um, I remember uh, following um, a politician in the European Parliament and he said, there is no way that Turkey would ever j- could ever join the European Union because uh, we are a Christian Europe and international law applies to Christian states, not these states, right? And he, he sort of scoffed at the fact that Muslims... Uh, you know, it's a similar. It's it's a similar the, type. The, the of
2: irony thing. this is, of course, At- Ataturk explicitly was well, very openly influenced by yeah. French uh, uh, yeah. laïcité, the, the French secularism sure. uh, yeah. in Turkey. So the irony is, you know, the, the Turks sought to be more French or European than the Europeans, and yet they're still they're still not good enough. <laughs> they're still not haven't quite met the bar, even when they explicitly mm. adopt uh, the, these French uh, secularist ideas, i uh, non religious ideas, obviously.
3: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, and so, to take on, to follow on from Westphalia, what we have is we have a period of stability in Europe um, after Westphalia, where these uh, these sl- it's a slow and steady process where st- the state system develops and uh, the n- nation states begin to uh, begin to develop as concrete uh, sovereign boundaries. Now, of course. Uh, wars don't end and uh, wars of conquest don't end in, in Europe. But, if, but every time, for example, when Napoleon in the 19th century uh, 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 starts a, a, a bid to unite the European Union, you know, you can say it's a it's a yes, it's precursor. a precursor to the European <laughs> Union in many ways. Many precursors. Uh, Hitler as well uh, t- yeah. sought to unite Europe uh,
2: before yeah. the European Union. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and 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 so in many ways, but but the response to that is the state system, It's the Westphalian system. Mm. You know, uh, uh, Napoleon had had contravened international law, which was set out in 1648. Mm. Now, the reason why I mentioned these two uh, these two important. Historical um, events is that it it sort of leads to a, a a a new environment, a new atmosphere that develops in Europe, where religion slowly becomes less important. Mm. Where um, if you're no longer conquering another country because they're Protestant or Catholic, and you sort of have to accept that they are Protestant and Catholic. If you're if you now have to accept that there are two faiths within uh, Christendom. And uh, and one needs to learn to live, uh, be, you know, with these faith systems, then uh, you have an era of secularization. So by the time, uh, in particular, John Locke comes along in the mid seventeenth uh, century, religion is almost downplayed, or at least has a lesser importance when it comes to state affairs, especially in the Protestant countries, mm. because Protestantism, unlike Catholicism. Uh, does not interfere in state matters as much as catholicism does and of course that's an over exaggeration in in many ways and 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 there are instances in particular in britain where uh, pro- where kings protestant kings do use the protestant faith in order to wield political power but but certainly you do have uh, a waning of religious uh, uh, religious authority at least political authority in europe and that that heralds a, an era of free thinking, an era of of, of philosophical currents, which culminate in uh, uh, which I you know, in in the era of John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. Now, uh, I've uh, I've included in, in these slides uh, a lot more elaboration, I suppose, of of Hobbes and Locke. But I'll give you a quick summary of these two thinkers and why they're important mm. to the left right divide today, into conservatism and liberalism. Because, in a way, Thomas Hobbes is, uh, uh, he, he develops what becomes known as traditional conservatism, or at least some of his thoughts are embraced by early, I mean, certainly Edmund Burke. Uh, uh, gave a lot of credibility to uh, to the ideas of Thomas Hobbes, and in particular his view of human nature. Thomas Hobbes famously wrote in his book Leviathan, which is a difficult read, and I remember reading it as an undergraduate. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's well worth investing it's some time. I'm sure you've read quotes, it, Paul.
2: Yeah, it's full of chunky quotes in the Bible and stuff. And <laughs> oh, my goodness. Where's he going to get to the point? But, yeah. <laughs> that's that's right. Right.
3: Yeah. So Thomas Hobbes, in his book Leviathan, he talks about how human beings are uh, live lives that are nasty, brutish, brutish and, short. and
2: short. Yes,
3: it, it's a very bleak view of human nature and how human beings mm. are—they um, are, are psychologically and emotionally conditioned to live in in negative entities. And so, in a sense, you need to have a Leviathan. You need to have a strong mm. central state, a monarch, mm. to keep the worst appetites of human beings on track, right? Yep. Uh, and so even if this leviathan is an authoritarian figure uh, that devours your property, it is still better to have a, a leviathan, this overarching authority, than not to have this authority because anarchy will ensue if you try to get rid of this authority. Mm-hmm. Now John Locke comes along, and and both of, both Hobbes and Locke are informed by the uh, the British civ- English Civil War uh, and the uh, the the fleeting um, uh, era of republicanism that that arises in 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 Britain in England, and John Locke comes along and he takes a different line to Hobbes. His argument is that so Hobbes has this philosophical contraption that he develops, which we'll briefly talk about, called the the, the state of nature, the idea that without when you. It, When you're the the state of nature is a is a a philosophical contraption. It's a period of pre-society and pre-state, and Hobbes argues in that period you live these nasty, short, and brutish lives. John Locke comes along and argues actually that's just not the case. In a state of nature, one can find channels of cooperation with others, Mm. and within time, because it's what stephen pinker talks about a liberal a modern liberal talks about today the better uh, better angels of our nature uh would uh would uh would arise out of this state of nature but he, he's a,
2: he's a professor of psychology at harvard actually he's not just a liberal thinker he's actually yes. a- very eminent uh, scientist, uh, and uh, and his his book on, on gender is actually worth uh, on um, anyway, that's a different subject, but he's worth reading in some ways. I yeah, think.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Sibermanikar is is, uh, is is a very complex individual, and it's worth uh, it's worth certainly worth reading. Uh, mm. It's the idea that. Um, it's the idea of of liberal cooperation, the idea that we do have uh, it's what jean jacques Rousseau Rousseau later talks about when he a, when he
2: in the social contract of in course. the social
3: contract, right? We have these these better uh, qualities within us. It's mm-hmm. a less bleak view of the world than Hobbes. I mean, to cut a long story short, John Locke begins uh, the discussion that leads to modern day or leads to classical liberalism. It's mm-hmm. a he talks about uh, the need for. Uh, the need for individualism, the need to focus human political thought on uh, the primacy of the individual. Hmm. Before John Locke, religious philosophies and and uh, philosophies of ode would, would always focus on communities, right, yeah. and focus on societies. Well, John Locke subverts that type of thinking and argues, actually, the most important actors when it comes to human society are individuals and individuals are, are extremely important. In fact, uh, John Stuart Mill, later on in the 19th century, he builds on this thinking when he talks about uh, the need for, uh, he, if you remember, he's, he's, his philosophical contraption was the harm principle and, yeah. and the need to extenuate uh, the individuality of human beings. I, mean, I remember yeah. John Stuart Mill said, if if a person decides that <laughs> he's going to be eccentric and walk around naked, Mm. And there should be nothing to stop society from...
2: Exactly. Uh, and, and this is a book you should read, uh, John Stuart Mill, who wrote on liberty and wrote, uh, uh, on utilitarianism. Uh, yeah, I, I mention this particularly because he's a hugely influential English writer yes. in the 19th century, still suddenly in red today. Difficult to overstate uh, how important he is. So if you want to uh, really get under the skin of what's going on in English liberalism, um, you could do worse than begin with uh, John Stuart Mill, who is actually quite readable, unlike some other guys. He
3: he certainly uh, very readable and and his mentor and teacher, um uh, who's uh, who who developed uh, whose name I forget and you would tell me, Um it will come back to me and a say it was just on the tip of my tongue. Uh, he's Bentham. also you mean uh, Bentham. Jeremy Bentham. Oh, you Jeremy. Mean
2: Jeremy Bentham. I was thinking some some obscure guy at Oxford. No, Jeremy Bentham. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
3: Jeremy Bentham is is extremely uh, important to read. If you want to acquaint yourselves with the Western tradition, in in many ways, by the way, Jeremy Bentham uh, disagreed quite fundamentally with John Locke um, because John Locke developed this idea of natural rights, the idea that human beings are born with rights that predate their birth. So these are natural rights that they have. And in a sense, a king is not allowed to take away these rights. Uh, It's the first, it's the, it's the, uh, antecedent, antecedent, antecedent to um, uh, to the UN Charter of Human Rights. It's the uh, it's the idea that human beings are born uh, with. He he talked about the rights to life, liberty, and property. Mm. The idea that human beings have these fundamental rights, which cannot be. They can't. They can't. Cannot be divorced from them as individuals.
2: Although, Mohammed, although you, what you're saying is true, of course, yeah. but there is a ca- significant caveat. John Locke famously wrote that you know, free speech, people have a right to their opinions as individuals. Apart from one group who should not be allowed Cabinet. to have public opinion, and guess who they were? Atheists. A- All right, atheists. Yes. atheists. No, this is serious. He, yeah. he, atheists cannot be trusted to give their <laughs> <That's> right, right. <laughs> They don't believe in anything. What's the basis of their morality? They have no moral code. Who's very scathing. Yeah. They were not permitted. I'm absolutely serious. If you look this yeah. up, they were not permitted to have uh, the rights to, to public expression the way other groups did, be yeah. they Catholics or Protestants. So, uh, um and this and John Locke, uh, I think, was much more influential in the United States yeah. as a political theorist than he is here. I mean, here he's more known perhaps as a philosopher, and uh, he wrote yeah. some fascinating stuff on uh, empiricism and sense data and whatever. But yeah. in America, he really helped to. Uh, Influence even the the writing and the formation of the American Constitution uh, Ideas are really embedded in the United States Constitution and he's an English guy, you know, but um, so he's, he's hugely influential. If you want to understand the West, Western tradition, John Locke is certainly a, a guy to go to, along with J.S. Mill and Jeremy Bentham, as you correctly say.
3: And, and on that point, uh, you, you remind me, uh, it was Tom Paine, another English philosopher, an yes. activist, yes. who carried much of the thoughts of uh, John Locke and yes. uh, incited revolution in, in America in his uh, book, yeah, The Rights a, of Man.
2: He was an American patriot. He was very British as well. He yeah. was, uh, but he was very anti. Christian, i mean he, he read a book i've, I've got on, on the bible which points out he, he points out the what he sees as the contradictions and the absurdities in the the bible so he had a quite a zealous unitarian mission as well i think
3: right which is quite paradoxical because of course mm. um the founding fathers of the united states were extremely you know religious and uh and, yeah, and
2: you not know yeah some of them are quite unitarian and enlightenment yes. uh, um you know there's uh that going down that particular rabbit hole uh yeah. Quite complicated. They weren't what we would call evangelicals. I don't think. No, no,
3: exactly, exactly. <clears throat> so, so I, I suppose that the point I'm making here is that uh, what John Locke does, uh, in in critiquing, in a sense, uh, Hobbes's mm-hmm. uh, bleak Leviathan type of idea, John Locke develops the, the the idea of individuality, the idea of rights and natural rights. He develops a, he writes a book on toleration, and as you said, you know he adds some limits to his toleration. even in, in, on toleration, he talks about Catholics actually as being particularly problematic because they have uh, allegiance to the papacy, and, and that dual allegiance uh, is, 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 uh, is problematic when it comes to allegiance to a British monarch, right? to an English monarch. So it, in many ways, uh, what John Locke begins. Uh, is a process where different philosophers, they you know, we can talk about Kant. I know you've spoken about Kant before, and Rousseau, and 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 others who build on, and, and of course John Stuart Mill and, and and others who build on the very liberal thoughts of uh, <clears throat> John Locke. Um, but
2: we, we must say uh, I, I i've got to mention my my favorite one of my favorite english writers uh Edmund Burke
3: yeah he was on the
2: revolution of France I mentioned yeah. him because he he is definitely a conservative response to yes. these dangerous ideas of liberalism <laughs> and secularism and revolution uh that were abroad i actually found this rather difficult to read is written huh. in a certain style uh which is not very readable but uh edmund book uh, burke even is um hugely influential today on on conservative thinking um right. by conservative i don't mean far right i mean kind of mainstream conservative uh yeah. thinking associated with people in in britain uh, people like uh, sir john um Rogers, uh, richard Scru- roger richard roger scruton yeah. uh, who sadly died recently who was like a modern incarnation of edmund burke but um so these ideas that you're you're uh, uh, sh- sharing with us uh, w- w- did were challenged they didn't go unchallenged by yeah. european thinkers themselves and and in britain edmund burke was the main counterblast to these dangerous new ideas
3: and 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 that is uh, exactly and that's a, a a a point that i want to make and mm. i think mean, you made it very well there that you know this this liberal trend or this development of liberalism uh does have its critiques and does mm. have its criticisms and and of course edmund burke uh, when uh, making reference to the uh, the French Revolution, and as you showed as you you showed us there in your book, uh, he uh, uh, he develops or he argues that this revolution is, is not going to work uh, because it's too ideational. It's built on abstract ideas and human being and human society. <clears throat> cannot develop on abstract ideas. Mm. Uh, Edmund Burke is a proponent of pragmatism. His basic philosophy is that the way by which political society needs to function and progress is through um, uh, incremental changes Mm. through experience, right, through empirical um, um, experiences, and um, when you need to change, you will know you need to change. And that's why conservatism uh, it's very much about conservation. It's about not having too too many radical changes and revolutionary changes in society. And so mm-hmm. he points to these ideological problems in in both, by the way, the American revolutions and and the French Revolution, yeah. and argues that. Yeah. You know, this is not how you structure society. And so from this point onwards, in particular, I mean, liberalism goes global, I suppose, through the American and French revolutions, mm-hmm. and, and these societies become ideational, become ideological societies. Uh, they, you know, it's the idea of the, the city on the hill, as as we know from uh, uh, John Winthrop in, in the United States, the idea that America would be the <laughs> example, the exemplar of a type of society but others within time would have to emulate right and that type of liberal universalism has not left us today if we think about uh, the wars of the the Iraq and Afghanistan wars i mean these wars were partly fought at least on the basis of liberal interventionism the idea that uh, uh, the mm-hmm. universalism of human rights and of democracy and of freedom of lockean ideas need to be uh, conveyed to the world you know if anything um uh the uh the um uh, the uh, liberal experiment has been a very religious experiment you know it's a, it's a very zealous experiment it's an experiment of of uh, a project of conveying um um these ideas and we see that actually in in the recent debates about uh, the qatar woke up right mm. i know you i i read your tweet about it and you know it's it's the idea that everyone needs to think the same as us
2: but this is interesting. I, 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 um, there's a, a, a quote here i just like to share with you by Samuel Huntington. He wrote the famous book, The Clash Clashes. of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, a hugely influential text um, by Samuel Huntington. And he says something which uh, we in the, uh, the West nearly always forget. I would say 99.9%. That's probably an understatement. Except for him and he got it. But everyone else, non-Westerners, always get it. What is this statement? Here it is. Page 51 of his book, he writes the West won the world not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion to which few members of other civilizations were converted, but rather by its superiority in applying organized violence. Absolutely, Westerners often forget this fact. I certainly do. Non-Westerners never do. That's <laughs> right. Non-Westerners ever get the West was not one did not didn't want the world because superior of its ideas or values or religion but rather by its superiority in applying organized mm. violence uh, and westerners usually obviously prefer to get this inconvenient fact we just think we're naturally superior mm. non-westerners never forget this because they live with the consequences of colonization neo-colonization economic and military occupation and invasion I mean, the list of countries that the West has invaded in our lifetimes is so long I couldn't even begin to recite it. And yeah. it, and the traffic is always one way. When was the last time the Muslim country invaded the West? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to go back at least uh, four hundred years uh, to the gates of Vienna, I suspect, when the Ottoman yeah. Empire was pushing its way up. So um, I, I think Huntington. This is he's usually seen as a hawkish figure, someone who's certainly not pro-Muslim, mm-hmm. but he, he he hits on a profound truth here which we routinely ignore in our Western foreign policies, uh, that we're not superior because we are superior, but because we basically have at the moment more guns and tanks and wherewithal to invade and impose our will. And that now translates into economic dominance and political hegemony as well. Not just uh, brute force. So yeah. So I thought it was a fascinating quote.
3: No, and I I would like to echo that. I mean, Sammy Huntington is is a very good read, and and uh, his his book on the clash of civilizations has been critiqued uh, in in yeah. Western uh, Academy. uh But I, I feel that. You know, of course, there are parts of it that we would we would dispute as as Muslims, right? But uh, if you think about Edward Said's uh, critique mm. of of uh, Edward Said comes from the left, but his criticism of uh, of Samuel Huntington is actually erroneous because Samuel Huntington's idea is that Islam is a civilizational unit, mm. and you're not going to change that civilizational unit. You've got to learn to live with it in a way. So, you know, he's a realist in international relations. His argument is that we shouldn't be uh, trying to uh, convey democracy and liberalism to the rest of the world. We need to recognize that there are, I think he divided the world up into eight or nine civilizational uh, entities, and he argued the most important of those were the Islamic and Chinese uh, civilizations, because they've got a history, a precedence of of recent history of, of civilizational cultures, right? And his argument was that One needs to think deeply about how we relate to the Muslim world as well as the Chinese civilization. Now, Edward Said, which is a left wing response to it, is that this is an over exaggeration. Islam is not this. Islam is not sort of this civilizational unit, and this is Orientalism. But actually, I would side with, in this instance, I would side with Huntington over. Uh, you know, it's what uh, Shabir Akhtar, Doctor Shabir Akhtar, who I know you know, and I, I have a very strong uh, relationship with Shabir Akhtar, talks about this. He he wrote a f- fantastic book, which actually is not Ooh. read Ooh, by very many yeah, let,
2: let me let me guess. Hang on
3: a second. <laughs> wasn't expecting. Is it this book by any chance? Uh, Islam and imperial faith. Yes, the future of uh, an imperial I, faith.
2: Yes. Is, can yes. I just say, I, I mean, we both know Shabir Akhtar. Uh, yes. He's a good friend of us. But uh, he, he has told me that this is this book has never been reviewed.
3: Never.
2: Uh, and it is uh, of all the books I've read. This is one of my favorite books. Uh, Islam yes. as political religion, the fu- future of an imperial faith. Uh, it's an absolute must-read for Muslims yes. today to understand the uh, the Muslim religion as a political, uh, as an imperium. Even I mean, it, it breaks all the rules. You're not supposed to talk about Islam like <laughs> this. Um, and the future of an imperial faith. And and Shabaka is far from being a. He's certainly not an extremist or anything. He's a a, a very well-respected academic at Oxford University. He's a philosopher. Yes. Actually, he's a. Uh, that's his job to be a philosopher every day. Um, yes. But he, he writes like an angel, and his erudition is simply intoxicating and outstanding and i am constantly in awe of his brain <laughs> so um um so i do uh, recommend that book because i think you probably do as well mohammed uh,
3: absolutely absolutely and i think it's um, it should be a must on on everyone's <laughs> reading as you said it's just yeah, you are
2: under- the, the only other human being i've ever met apart from shabit aqtar who wrote the thing who's even even read it <laughs> so um <laughs> well you, you and i must form a, a sort of fan club the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the two members of the 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 shabit Agda fan club no, well i
3: think we should uh, we should we should go and visit shabir akhtar in office yes. and, <laughs> and make no, a day over
2: <laughs> no, so i've never met the guy you know i've been had countless phone calls with him in whatsapp messages and you name it and i've had him on the channel of course but never actually physically met him and uh, it nearly happened once or twice but it didn't quite happen no that'd be great Mohammed. It'd Be great if we could meet him one day in person
3: yeah no and he's very uh um <clears throat> he's very kind i mean you know i remember meeting him some years back and um uh, we were at, he, he we were at a mutual friend's house. and um, um you know I, at that time, I didn't know much of him. I didn't know he was a philosopher from oxford and and uh, so, most of the discussion was Shabir asking me questions and Mm. trying to inquire about my way of thinking, right? Um, And little did I know that this is an eminent, you know, uh, so he's very down to earth. (laughs) And and this was me probably saying most of what I said was probably nonsensical, but um, uh, Shabir was very
2: gracious i'm sure that's not true
3: sorry anyway i mean interrupt you again sorry no, no i i enjoy the interruptions and you've got this way of going back to your bookshelf and picking out a book i may no, do the I, same
2: i, I do it's, it's a great indulgence for me i've actually <laughs> ever share these things with people um yes. I, I normally, reading is a very solitary activity and i don't normally yes. it's very difficult to talk to anyone about it if they've not even heard of the book you know so yeah. um yeah. It, it's a great privilege to talk to you
3: anyway carry on Fantastic. Well, look. Um, so, uh, just to give this quick summary of of the history of conservatism and liberalism. So, uh, yeah. as I as you said, and as you quite rightly pointed out, Edmund Burke uh, proposes a critique, a conservative critique, not just of the French Revolution, but also the dislocation that comes with industrialization and urbanization. Uh, it's what's picked up by a politician later on, Benjamin Disraeli, who, of course. Uh, talks about uh, one-nation conservatism, the idea that Britain, if exposed too heavily to this new industrial revolution that comes along in the 18th century and, and the urbanization that comes with it, uh, what's going to happen out of that is, is uh, go, you're going to create these individualistic communities mm. where the the nodes that keep society together and keep communities together, the little platoons, as mm-hmm. Edmund that's Burke famous, talks about.
2: Famous yeah. that, that expression is used a lot in cons- the, the modern Conservative Party, I should say, yeah. that's it's still currency. Uh, William Hague often uses it.
3: He <laughs> does. Yeah, he does. Those little <laughs> platoons are going to disappear and we're going to live these individualistic lives. And so there is this countercurrent to, uh, mm. you know, this enormous force of liberalism that, um, that dominates uh, European discourse. Um, and and in many ways, conservatism then becomes an opposition force to uh, to liberalism. Now, that doesn't mean that conservatives are immune to the forces of liberalism. As uh, years develop, conservative parties across Europe and across the West embrace some of the thin and thick values of liberalism. And, and you know, if we were to jump head one one bit, we could go to you know Thatcherism and Reaganism and and how. This neoliberalism resuscitates, in many ways, the classical thoughts of uh, of Locke and of John Stuart Mill, and 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 tries to bring Britain back to those original thoughts of liberalism. And so, yeah. the modern Conservative Party is is uh, uh, it holds on to some values of Burkean conservatism, but in many ways is today influenced more by this uh, classical liberalism that comes out of the uh the, the values of of Locke and Mill than than maybe Burke. Um and you can see that in, you know, the modern Conservative Party in their view towards social matters. I mean David Cameron famously introduced yeah. uh gay marriage, right? Which yeah. um well, he didn't uh,
2: introduce it, which he did, but he actually yeah. made it mandatory for MP3-line uh, yeah. whip uh, to actually, they forced them to yeah. vote for it. Otherwise, they lost yeah. the party whip, which meant essentially yeah. expulsion from the Conservative Party. So the, the, this this liberal reformer forced it through with the most authoritarian measures. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair, as did the other parties, the Labour Party and the other party, yeah. the Liberal Democrat, whatever they were called at that time, also yeah. forced it through uh, yeah. Parliament. Uh, and uh, no, you're absolutely right.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, David Cameron could not have introduced it without the help of the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, who, of course, were their coalition partners. Because he did uh-huh. have a, a major bank bench rebellion. But you're 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 absolutely right there. So the modern, you know, the modern Conservative Party uh, is in many ways a, a liberal party with some conservative trappings, yes. and yes. and often the conservatism is is very symbolic. Um yes. and this is what Peter Obon argues he his argument is that the modern Conservative Party is no longer a conservative party That's because right. it right. it has it has very little in common with the Burkean sensitivities that come with conservatism. Uh, in terms of
2: social policy and things like that the uh, the Conservative Party opposes the left of course because it's a conservative party but it's always like several years behind the curve so the mm-hmm. left will set the agenda or oh, mm-hmm. gay marriage or this or this and the conservatives mm-hmm. oppose it. Uh, but in a few years, they come around and then they adopted themselves. And, and indeed, in Cameron's case, he's the guy that actually made it law in terms of the so-called gay marriage uh, thing. So um, they, they did just a, a slower version of an ongoing liberal secular movement or revolution, uh, I, I would call it, actually, that has been going on for a very, very long time. So mm-hmm. there's not really a conservative party at all, as, as you say. It, it's uh, It's kind of just a... A, a, a more moderate form or weakened form of it. But ultimately, mm. the destination is the same, actually. The Conservatives and the Liberals, perhaps in disagreement with you, or say do actually converge yeah. at some point, at some future point. They're not truly different, actually, yes. uh, um, yes. in, in a fundamental way. And, and this is where you know, I'm banging on about my own hobby horse here, people like uh, Rene, Rene Gaino, um yes. the Muslim uh, writer in his famous book, The Crisis of the Modern World. I mentioned him because he represents a different kind of r- traditional conservative thought, which yes. is explicitly rejects liberalism in a very uh, clear way. It doesn't have any truck with it at all. Um, and, and looks back to uh, an older set of rightist values. with Nothing to do with race, by the way. Mm-hmm. This is to do with uh, understanding of, of society, of, of human beings, which is fundamentally different from this liberal-slash-conservative um, kind of duopoly, which kind of dances around the same maypole, but gets mm-hmm. to the same destination in the end, I would think, s- cynically yeah. speaking, anyway.
3: No, that's right. And, and we're now seeing a countercurrent to... Uh, these prevailing forces, we can call it yes. post-liberalism, right? And and it's a very broad area that, uh, and I talk about it here, that um, encompasses, mm. you know, uh, people like the Trump uh, right and white nativism in in the United States and the rise of populism, Victor Orban, but also people like Patrick Denine, you know, a conser- a traditional conservative that mm. doesn't want to go back to a classical liberalism like the neoliberals do, but actually talks about a society. Built on the foundations of community, uh, a society where the individualism isn't, isn't uh, the primary force and the primary actor. Uh, so he mm. wants to go to a a pre-Lockean uh, um, era where uh, communities mattered and societies mattered and religion mattered. Um, uh, and and that's these are really interesting trends. And I think if there's one thing that Muslims need to do today is we need to evaluate and assess and analyze these trends because there may be some value in these trends of course we have to view them through the filter of of our islam and you know we we need to know when to take the good and when to remove the bad mm. but but there are some really interesting ideas that pervade the general uh, public and i and i think there is a there is now probably more so than ever before uh, since the end of the cold war there is a this era allows for uh, new discussions, new new discourses, and I think uh, we need to find Muslim uh, a Muslim way in an Islamic way into into the post liberalism discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to make one point, just to go back uh, ever so slightly. Um, mm-hmm. So on the timeline, um, okay, okay. liberalism uh, goes through a number of iterations. I think the major iteration. Uh, is when liberalism morphs into something quite different after the end of the First World War. And it, it really is a transatlantic enterprise. So both in the United States and in, in Britain, liberal parties in the UK, we've got, of course, Asquith and Lloyd George. Uh, in the United States, you've got uh, Wilson from the Democrats, Woodrow Wilson. And these um, liberal thinkers begin to reevaluate what liberalism is. And in many ways, they begin to uh, critique classical liberalism, in particular the idea that the state should not interfere in the lives of people, and the state should be this night watchman that remains aloof from society, and, and human beings should be allowed to act in their own free uh, ways without uh, state interference. And so what we have at the, at the end of the First World War Mm-hmm. is we've got this new wave of liberalism uh you may know and um, there was uh i mean charles dickens by the way is a social commentator who in many ways is a crit is a is a uh, a vociferous critique uh, uh, of a critic of uh classical liberalism and, and the type of society the victorian society that was created uh that led to immense poverty you know yeah. about the uh, the Booth and Roundtree, the the chocolate manufacturers, who mm-hmm. uh, who were Quakers, in fact, and and yep. uh, their religious sensibilities um, made them aware that some for for whatever reason, um, classical liberal thinking at that time, the prevailing thinking at that time, which 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 comes out of the Industrial Revolution, that thinking is is creating a society where. People are suffering. People are living in in very horrific circumstances. And and yeah. when uh, the question is asked, well, who can do something about this? Uh, the, the sort of classical liberal ideals state that um, the state should never get involved. It's almost the idea that the survival of the fittest. You know, they they are in these people remain poor uh, because uh, they. Uh, they uh, are too lazy or they don't have the talent and the skills uh, to to make their way in, in modern in modern urban life, right? And one of
2: those egregious examples of that I, I would say is that with the so called potato family in Ireland yeah. and the response to that. Basically, the obviously that whole British Isles era was controlled by uh, the, the crown under Queen Victoria, particularly. Um, but the the, the, brut- the brutal kind of uh, laissez faire capitalist yeah. ideology that prevailed in Westminster uh, prevented any kind of humanitarian. Um, concern for uh, the way the market was uh, impoverishing people in in ireland um but interestingly the ottoman caliph at the time uh, uh the, the muslim caliph at the time um sent shiploads he was moved but by pity these are sons of adam of course mm. the, 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 the irish might have been catholic but they were sons of adam and he was moved as, as a muslim caliph to send huge vast amounts of uh of um you know foodstuffs and other other support by ship uh from uh what we call turkey to um ireland and the the queen the queen victoria the, the government here in, in england actually protested and says look you you can't send this uh because um you, you just mustn't you know, queen victoria has sent a little bit and we can't have the ottoman outclassing her or out you know showing her up so send a lot less please I and mean, this is all <laughs> you know, all, all openly acknowledged. Yeah. And so the Ottoman Caliph agreed officially to reduce his contributions, to relieve the appalling suffering of the Irish people because of this attitude. But secretly, he he sent um, a, a lot more um, uh, relief to the Irish people um, because that was the, he was determined to uh, get, make sure this charity got through. Uh, and the, the, uh, the Victorian government uh, took legal action against mm. the ottomans for daring to give relief and charity to the starving irish you couldn't make this up by the way it, yeah. it is so it is such a stain on our history that um but uh the the legal action obviously failed because the ottomans came in and gave food to starving people anyway mm. but the government would, would seek to prevent charity getting towards uh, hungry people in ireland you 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 you, you, you it is, no, it is no, no wonder that the Irish have historically been very anti-British and have supported um, you know, anti-British causes in various... but well, I am not going into the rest of it, but mm. uh, it's an appalling story. And it, it is a, a very practical manifestation of the ideology, this liberal non-interventionist ideology, this harsh neoliberalist capitalist um, agenda, and the way it it literally starved millions of people because they were left to the brutality of the market and the government refused to help muslims did help or they tried to help uh, and then the government tried to stop them as well um so it's an appalling story and and i do recommend people look into it and find out for themselves yeah. what, what really happened
3: yeah that's a fantastic fantastic it's, it's a good example of um about it as soft power right you know of yeah. course it was done for sincere reasons but it's a way by which you communicate your influence in the world and you know Often today uh, Islamic soft power is reduced to just individual acts of charity mm-hmm. uh, the, you know we are we no longer have state actors that mm-hmm. fight for corner for for Islam and um, you know the, the powerful nature of that act um, and you know it had a, it must have had an enormous impact on the mindset of uh, those impoverished Irish uh, people um, so so this classical liberalism uh, is found, to be uh, to be indifferent to poverty, indifferent to the economic circumstances of others, and Woodrow Wilson and and David Lloyd George in in you can Herbert Asquith in the in the United Kingdom, uh, they advance a new a new uh, idea of liberalism, which becomes known as social liberalism or modern liberalism, where you where the state does intervene, where there is an emphasis, not just on negative freedom, they call it. Um, This is an idea that the state should leave you alone in order to be free, but positive freedom, where the state uh, has to enable your freedom. It's what John Rawls, a a modern liberal, talks about um, as the enabling state, the idea that there needs to be state intervention. Now, there's a lot of discussion in the academy about how much liberalism was impacted by the Russian Revolution, and by socialism in, in this mm. sense, because mm. socialism, of course, believes in uh, in full intervention. It believes in a controlled, in a, in in doesn't believe in markets. It believes in a controlled economy, a command economy. Um, uh, you, th- there is some argument there. In fact, David Lloyd George in, in England, in Britain, uh, did uh, visit uh, Kaiser Germany, did visit uh, Germany because Germany was at the forefront of developing a welfare system, a welfare state, and, and uh, a lot a lot was learned from, from the germs. Anyway, regardless of how they got there, this modern liberalism uh, incorporates more state intervention and develops into an ideology that, uh, within time, embraces social causes beyond those initial rights that mm. John Locke spoke up. So John Locke spoke about the right to life, liberty, and property. Mm. But of course, rights becomes a discourse. I mean, at the same time, you've got the yeah. suffragette movement, which, by the way, the Liberal Party here in the UK fought tooth for now against the suffragettes. I mean, they, yeah. were, uh, they were treated very harshly by, uh, by the, the Liberal Party, partly because if the suffragettes were given the vote, if middle-class women were given the vote, they would have voted Conservative probably <laughs> and not the Liberals, right? Yeah. So, for political reasons, the liberals in Britain decided that they were going to forego their principles in exchange for um, uh, political expediency, and it's partly down to the fact that suffragettes did firebomb David Lloyd George's house. uh, I uh, mean,
2: I I was not supposed to say this, but it remains a fact that a lot of suffragettes committed a lot of terrorist acts. (laughs) I mean, they they were terrorists. I mean, still alive today, suffragettes would be on the prevent program like nothing else. Absolutely, firebomb, they attacked um yeah. but we overlooked that because they're on the right side of history therefore we're <laughs> no, all yeah, their yes. terrorism if they're on yeah. the wrong side of terror uh, of history yeah. we would only ever mention their terrorist acts so yes. you know th- this is how it works in the real world
3: <laughs> yeah no isn't that interesting i remember reading one account of a suffragette and uh, she said you know she was a little old lady and she a very middle class you know lady and she said i was walking down oxford street and um you know just admiring the shop windows and then i decided to take a hammer out of my handbag and <laughs> of smash every yeah. window on yeah. Oxford street as a way of protest right yeah. uh so yes I mean, certainly they, were.
2: They were, there's actually i saw a video on youtube you know so what but you know that they, they they listed all the terrorist acts that they were and they were quite you know they were real terrorist acts yes. but it's, it's extraordinary how you know the guardian and other other uh, you know, notable liberal newspapers when they talk about it, it's always in very hallowed terms. Oh, these yeah. wonderful martyrs weren't they wonderful and they suffered so much. They were suffragettes after all. And yeah. yet they, they committed many uh, 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 terrorist acts which outraged people and lost them sympathy, of course. That's the the point.
3: Yeah. Excellent. I, I know we're ha- we're we're sort of pressed on time oh, yeah. here. So yeah, yeah. We'll move should, on. I, should I should I I will I will finish this off quite quite quickly, and we can we can have a discussion about it. So I suppose the, the thing to say about liberalism mm. is that uh, it takes on this, uh, it develops into something quite different. And actually, classical liberals would would often at the time would often uh, see modern liberalism as an aberration, as mm. as a an idea that had moved beyond liberalism, because of course. The more the state intervenes, the more personal and individual freedom is encroached. Right. Uh, The more you you have to pay in taxation, the more you find that the state uh, uh, disables you from undertaking your personal pursuits Mm. because it may infringe the uh, the rights of the poor, for example. And so there's this tension within liberalism. And by the way, this tension can be seen today within uh within the modern republican party and the democrats they are two liberal parties in many ways um mm, yeah. and uh well certainly are liberal parties but they they latch on to different parts of liberalism i mean to simplify it the republican party mm. in, in especially in economic terms uh uh the Trump. Liberalism, Trump Republicanism is is morphing into something quite different. Actually, we'll talk about that in a second. But the mainstream Republican Party is a Reaganite party, yes. and it it goes it pays a lot of attention to uh, to the early days of liberalism. It is a classical liberal party, right? It believes in freedom and economic laissez-faire and yeah. and and non and uh, deregulation and all of those ideals that come with classical liberalism. Whereas the Democrats believe in the Rawlsian, the Wilsonian type of liberalism, where the state intervenes, where you have programs, where you have um, interventions of the state uh, that um, classical liberals would find to be a bidder, They would find this to be a an innovation of of of. Uh, original forms of liberalism. The other thing to note about this modern liberalism is as rights expand beyond the suffragettes and of course uh, the civil rights movement uh, develops which which incorporates uh, this rights movement. I mean Martin Luther, uh, the, um, uh, Martin Luther Jr., um, Martin Luther King Jr.
2: Martin Luther, not Martin Luther I, I saw his uh, portrait yeah. in uh, Leipzig just three days ago. I did a video of oh, wow. from- uh, that that uh, the, the other guy, uh, the Martin Luther King, yes. um, is
3: the American uh, guy. Yes, <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr., he, he in fact echoes a lot of the values of early mm. liberalism. He, mm. His argument is that, yeah. look, if these rights, if all men are born equal, if the Declaration of Independence is true, then certainly black people. And of course. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote that line, uh, was a slave owner and, and continued yeah. to be a slave he had a,
2: owner. He had a slave mistress with whom he had a child.
3: Yes, yes, I heard about that. Um, I, and John Locke, by the way, had shares in the, the Anglo-American slave uh, company. So, you know, these uh, 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 early liberal reformers uh, all had their blind spots. I mean, uh, even John Stuart Mill, who, who had a slightly more nuanced view towards a colony, still believed in British colonialism and, and had a, a strong sense of racial superiority when it came to uh, black people and Asian people. So, you know, early liberals and, and I would argue contend even liberals today, you know, the, those, that sense of superiority remains um, in, you know, in many ways. Absolutely. Uh, as rights expand, um, you get, in particular, gender rights and sexual rights. Um, mm. So the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s uh, is, you know, I- in many ways a precursor to what we know as liberal multi- liberal feminism and and the mm. the sort of the second wave of feminism, which uh, incorporates more than voting and education rights, but but incorporates um, uh, social rights and gender rights within this general rights agenda. Mm. Um, so, a good person to read is, uh, or good inverted commas, is Betty Friedan, uh, who uh, I think wrote her book was. Uh, she talked about how the housewife was a was a uh, a modern concentration camp attendee. I think it was her phrase. You know, okay. uh, she 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 was like a a prisoner, and uh, the monotony of women's lives have to be change and she she talked about how in fact betty friedan at one stage went to the point where she argued that women should be disallowed from making the choice to be a housewife you know yeah. so we talk about freedom but they should not be allowed to make that free choice if they be, wanted to
2: be, be forced to be free and in certain be ways, to be free. that's a very characteristic yeah. of, a lot of modern liberalism Yeah,
3: as well you know the afghans need to be forced to be free Absolutely. and so do so, a yeah. 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 housewife. So, so we've got this new wave of feminism. I know there's a lot of debates on social media about feminism. And uh, I would I would say that um, uh, the one point I would make, because it's not really the focus of today, is that um, a, a lot of what a, 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 many Muslims embrace this discourse because they latch on one aspect of it, which may be. Uh, particularly uh, inspiring to them right so young muslim uh, girls would say well of course you know we should have more rights as 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 women but problem is of course uh, uh, when it comes to feminism and when it comes to liberalism as a whole is that liberalism is a thick ideology and when you you know when you embrace liberalism, you need to you need to recognize that you're embracing this wider ideational context, right? It's not just there's one or two things that you may agree with that you you hope to latch on, but actually there are wider premises that we as Muslims find extremely problematic. We mm-hmm. find individualism extremely problematic in our faith. We find individuality extremely problematic in, in, a, in our in our faith we find you know the concept of unrestrained freedom a, a very problematic idea if you read Joseph Kaminsky's book on liberalism which uh which is a fantastic read uh he talks about how you know we have to fess up and and face up to the fact that there are many uh facets of liberalism that we have a fundamental problem with right so so i you know this I, and, and, yeah. just
2: just to say until oh, there are any, any non-muslim viewers who might think oh well this is a muslim hobby horse you know if you as you've already said if you look through european history the last two or three hundred years that there are very strong uh elements of of reaction against these these kind of liberal ideas within the european uh context itself politically mm-hmm uh theoretically philosophically without going through the whole list so this is a highly contested idea within european european history is not the western tradition in some monolithic way it's incredibly diverse it's contested there have been wars fought over it you know the two world wars the second world war had elements of this in as well so it's become universal hegemonic today but this is unusual i mean historically um it's the ebb and the flow of this mm. you see this constantly throughout European history At the moment we're seeing the dominance I think you're saying now we're seeing a more multipolar world where this has been beginning to fracture yes. um and, and many many people would say hurrah for that um but but it it has it, never been the ruling idea everywhere it's always been either defeated or pushed back on or it's come back and dominated again there's always been this struggle over it in terms of the historical record I think
3: no absolutely and and I mm. suppose that's that's my final point when it comes to this slide you know what we're seeing so we saw uh, this neoliberal trend and and that dominated um economic and political discourse in the 1980s and 90s mm. um, after the end of the cold war we had francis Fukuyama, of course who famously talked about the end of history and how liberal democracy w- and capitalism would become would undergird uh the the politics and economics of every country in the world and by and now the, the, by the, the, way, the,
2: the idea of the new world order that this yes. very expression is, is associated with uh, his his name the new world order yeah
3: well, absolutely, and I think that was first uh, uh, talked about. It was George Bush Senior who uh, who gave a speech during the first Gulf War, where he uh, he echoed or he announced this New World Order, and, and the idea was to create a, a world where the where, where globalization and free markets and democracy would unite the peoples of this world into one. Mm. Entity. I mean Francis Fukuyama ridiculously said that the at the end of history there's nothing but boredom. You know the <laughs> idea that uh, you would live a life of monotony because um, The end of history would not lead to wars. It would not lead to conflicts. You know everyone if everyone's the same Then you're not going to go to war with one another. It's what Thomas Friedman You know equally ridiculously argued in the New York Times. That uh, he he talked about the golden arches theory, the uh, idea that no two countries with a McDonald's in it would ever go to war with one another, because uh, McDonald's uh, represents the epoch of capitalism, right? Yeah. You know the, the height of capitalism, and so he talked about how a young man would rather queue up, uh, a, a order in an orderly way in a in a queue at McDonald's than queue up to be uh, uh, to be uh, uh, to to go to war. Um, and so, you know, you had these ridiculous ideas and theories that liberalism would become this universal faith, almost. Mm. Um, and as you said, what we're seeing today is an unraveling of, of all of that. If anything, uh, the world has moved contrary to this uh, this utopia that was set out by uh, Francis Fukuyama and the like. And actually, the world has has moved in a different direction. Today, we're we're witnessing a world of deglobalization. Where globalization is fracturing, uh, we're seeing a world where free markets uh, are fracturing. In particular, if you if you think about the rise of China um, and the contest between China and and the United States, mm. um, we're seeing a world where um, the, the 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 precepts of liberalism are now heavily contested, not just by uh, the traditional conservatives, but even broader than that. I mean, I. Uh, we're we're seeing a world a post liberal world. Patrick Denine is is a good example of a writer um, uh, who who talks about his post liberalism. But I think that uh, and and of course uh, there are some unsavory parts of his post liberalism. The rise of white nativism. In fact, that is an an aspect of um, Huntington's theory, which where he was right. His argument was that as uh, this world proceeds after the Cold War, you are going to see the rise of cultural uh, uh, and ethnic groups uh, that resuscitate the idea of racial supremacy. And if you think about the New Zealand bomber, the New Zealand shooter who who killed uh, uh, sadly v- very many Muslims in the mosque, I mean, he echoed this great replacement theory, the idea that somehow European stock is being replaced by immigration and replaced by intermarriage and within time the white race would disappear. Now that isn't a fringe idea. Um, if you... no, I was just going to say, uh, I was going to mention another book, uh, Douglas ah, yes, Curry. Douglas We've is. not
2: mentioned this gentleman so far, but he's yes. a a key player in these discussions. Yes. Uh, uh, Europe: The Strange Death of Europe, subtitled Immigration, Identity, and Islam. Yes. This man, of course, does not like Islam at all, and no. um, and and uh, he, he's he's one of these who's pushing back against um, the. Uh, I don't know, the, the, the more radical forms of left-wing uh, polemic. But he's not really, uh, in the name of a kind of conservative philosophy, but mm-hmm. actually he, he's, he accepts the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement and everything else up to a certain point in the mm-hmm. 1980s, I think is the point, the cutoff point. And I think beyond that, where you get more radical um, LGBT, trans and all that, that's when he uh, says, no more. And then he goes, his more recent book, uh, The Madness of Crowds, uh, which I've also read, uh, Gender, Race and Identity. A lot of this, I think, a, a Muslim could read or a trad Catholic or uh, or other people could read with a great deal of uh, 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 interest, actually. Um, it, yeah. uh, it overlaps, I think, a lot of um, traditional concerns. Um, but it is laced with um, some uh, other polemic, which Muslims will find very difficult to stomach, I, I think. Um, and his most recent book, which I've not read, and I'm, I'm probably not going to buy it because uh, it's called The War on the West. Yes. Um, which I, I've not read, but I suspect it, it does highlight what you say. And there's another guy on on the far, well, far right. Yeah, I think it probably is. Uh, talking about a, a multipolar world, this guy Alexander Dugin. He's a political philosopher in Russia and uh, sometimes called in the West Putin's brain. And um, he's famous for the fourth political theory, um, which is his attempt to. Uh, restate uh, traditional values, if you like, rejecting, he says, fascism, rejecting communism, and above all, rejecting today's problem, as he sees it, which is liberalism. For him, illiberalism is evil. Um, He uses this kind of cosmic... Metaphysical language. Yes. Um, so he's very much anti Biden, anti American hegemony, uh, and wants to see a multi polar world, of course, where there are many different civilizations uh, coexisting, whether it be Chinese civilization, Islamic civilization. He's quite pro Islam in that sense, uh, Russian, the Russian Empire, and let the West have its thing in the mm-hmm. West. But he wants to push back against the encroachment, as he sees, of Western ideology globally, forcing everyone into a homogenized, liberal, secular, globalized mm-hmm. planet. That for him is the ultimate heresy, the ultimate evil. Um and there's much more to be said about him. He's incredibly controversial, particularly in the West. I've had some blowback from hosting uh his probably his his main translator and apologist mm-hmm. if you can call it a uh, dr michael milliman on this channel a yes. couple of mm-hmm. weeks ago but I, my, my defense has always been we've got to understand people even when we don't agree with them yes. and uh, dugan's uh, rhetoric certainly can be uh come across as very extreme but nevertheless his ideas are important because they apparently do uh have the ear of putin and this is i thought it was an urban myth but mm-hmm. a, a recent article came out showing because since the uh the, the sad assassination by allegedly by the ukrainians of dukin's daughter okay, is yeah. sadly murdered in broad daylight just a matter of a couple of months ago putin sent condolences to dugan uh, and has been advocating or or facilitating his access and his prominence within the kremlin now mm-hmm. so this guy dugan is no longer just an outlier on the political philosophy fringe of russian discourse he's now more center stage and if you listen to the rhetoric of putin and of dugan they even use the same vocabulary the same key terms the this word multipolar yeah. keeps on recurring yeah. so there is there seems to be a steady convergence of these two uh minds so mm-hmm. it's important we understand them even I like them or agree with them. That's that's my view anyway.
3: You yeah, know, he's known as Putin's brain, isn't he? And, yeah, and exactly. certainly so these post-liberalism in the sphere of post-liberalism now you you're there is a development of political ideas mm. uh, that uh, Occupy this this space and and that's really partly down to since the 2008 financial crisis uh, the West is in despair the West is in disarray and and uh, the United States, the epicenter of this globalization, of the epicenter of this of this unipolar world is now fraying. I mean, uh, a great yeah. person to read. I'm going to do what you do, if I can find <laughs> it. <laughs> a great person to read is... Oh, yes. Um, I like oh, I, recommendations. I'm not as quick as you, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, oh, here, no, it's not here. Anyway, the, a great person to read is, is Robert Kagan, if, if your viewers are interested in international politics. Here we go. It's one of his books. Okay. Oh, um, do so do hold up. it up. Robert Kagan. So this doesn't make very good TV, but Robert Kagan oh, great is great TV. Believe me, great TV. The jungle grows. <laughs> you heard of this? America and the imperial imperiled world. Imperiled world. Robert Kagan. The, the The jungle grows back. I mean, actually, it echoes quite similar to the um, foreign policy chief of the uh, European Union. So his argument is it's a very cogent argument. You know, Robert Kagan is a is a great writer in international relations, and uh, mm-hmm. your viewers can view some of his his speeches. He's a he was a neoconservative turned liberal. And it, it's all a bit messy in terms of his oh. his background. And he was a cheerleader for the uh, for the Iraq War. He worked with yeah. uh, Bill Crystal to, oh, yeah. Uh, to <laughs> Leo develop, yeah. yeah yeah. You may know develop these uh, the the sort of principles of mm. uh, democratization of the Muslim world. So mm. equally problematic, like Dugan, like you know um, uh, Douglas Murray, like um, Francis Fukuyama. But we need to read them. We need to be yeah. aware of yeah. what they're yeah. saying. Uh, i mean robert kagan robert kagan wrote a, a great mm-hmm. article in the atlantic i think it was uh it was published a week before i remember at the time barack obama was going to give a state of union address mm. and um robert kagan published this very long piece i mean it was a good 5000 words it was a long piece in in the magazine uh no it was in the new republic uh and it was it was titled something like superpowers don't get to retire, or words to that effect. And his argument was that, look, America is a superpower. But for whatever reason, we're giving up the fight. Right? We're no longer, uh, we no longer see ourselves as the the guidance in the world, the city on the hill, the the the, the state that is going to bring you know uh, greatness to the world. We've inverted commas all the way. Uh, and uh, we need to go through an intellectual change uh, in order to embrace our 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 position in the world uh, of of this sort of savior state. And uh, I remember at the time uh, Barack Obama, who had already written his script had already been written for um uh, for the State of the Union address, he rewrote the script after Robert Kagan's uh, pub- published this article, and it just goes to show that. Often academics, even though they may be in their ivory towers, can sometimes influence. Well, certainly can influence the political debate, as Dugin has uh, in in Russia. Yeah. Um, back to your point about the multipolar world, which I, you know, which I think is extremely important here. So. Mm. You know, we're 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 talking about my my article about the left and right and how Muslims mm. see themselves in this in this morass, in this culture wars that are that have invaded our cultural space and our social space across across Western uh, countries and in, and indeed in the Muslim world. Uh, in order for us to navigate that, we need to appreciate these trends quite intimately, quite in in a lot of detail. Mm. We need to understand what's going on. You know, we've got this post-liberalism trend we've got this questioning of liberalism as an ideological force and and that comes through in much of the support for donald trump in the united states Mm. Uh, a lot of those who support him want to move away from neoclassical economics want to move away from uh, uh from globalization they believe that globalization has harmed them and it has you know the average worker in the midwest has to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet um globalization has not helped them it's helped the californian penthouse um um, you know occupant uh it's it's helped the new york set but it's not helped those people in middle america who find themselves without jobs and and with with lower wages right so on the one sense you've got this uh you've got this phenomenon And we need to understand it from a Dawa perspective, we need to understand it, because there are certainly lines of Dawa there. It's not just the case that we write them off as racists and decide we're going to have nothing to do with them, because there is an opportunity to speak to them. But of course, we need to speak to them knowing full well what they stand for and where they're going. Um, so there's this ideological schism that's, that's developing in, in the West that we need to be aware of. But also there is a, a political schism, a global political schism, that uh, translates into um, some of these, uh, the differences and the tensions that we're seeing in geopolitics, the tensions between, the Ch- between China and the United States, between Russia, the European Union, and the United States. And I suppose my message is that <clears throat> with with this mess that we we can call the modern western world the muslim ummah the muslim communities in in these countries have to be well aware of these trends and we have to find a message which is sincere to islam sincere to what we believe in that is able to navigate these trends and actually present islam within these trends as a as a force for good as as a way to remove yourselves from these, uh, these uh, fault lines and these impediments that are being created in, in, in these societies. So I suppose I, I'm calling for, and my argument, and it, it's not an original argument, it's an argument that many Shabir Akhtar would make a very similar point, that, mm-hmm. you know, there is something about Islam that we all believe in, and that is that Islam is a, is a, uh, a, a force for change. Uh, Islam can can develop, can change societies from jahiliya, from ignorance, to something far better. And so, you know, our our dawah, our our call has to be to 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 try to present Islam and and to uh, to to think about ways by which we can enter that post-liberalism debate. Um, maybe that's my 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 point. I know that, you know, Professor Joseph Kaminsky and Ovamira Anjum and others are are doing a lot in this field. But I do feel that why is it that Dugan and Murray and others occupy this post-liberalism space? And we don't necessarily see, at least in the modern context, you know, certainly we we can talk about some Islamic thinkers of the past, but in modern context, we don't necessarily see very many Muslim scholars who are ready to take on uh, this space. If anything, we're still trying to incorporate some of the values of liberalism and conservatism mm-hmm. within our own way of thinking. And I think that's a very, that's what Ibn Khaldun calls a, you know, that, that type of mindset, yes. that, has, uh, that is defeated.
2: Very high, Which book was that from, do you recall, top of your
3: head, I meant to ask? Um, uh, uh, Ibn Khaldun? Yes. Or uh, yeah. Al Muqaddimah. Al Muqaddimah, that's his, um, Oh, I don't know what the translation is, but it, that's his, his seminal work.
2: Oh, it's, it's seven. Yeah, I know the one you mean. is the one that you always see on bookshelves. Yeah, that, um, <laughs> <I don't> bookshelves. <laughs> it's
3: always on bookshelves. But
2: yeah, that, yes, you have it. But, um, <laughs> no, I don't. That, I, I don't have that, but I do want that. And I'm just um, uh, no. Oh, it's not. Where did I put it? I was looking for another book which I've not mentioned yet, which I wanted to recommend. But anyway, I'll just mention it verbally because I know what it is. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, two, the two books just following on from what you're saying. Uh, ah, paper. that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm doing that. a poll today. I'm sure you are. Uh, so, who's published? I uh, recognise the cover. Who, who's the publisher of that one? Uh,
3: it's Penguin Books, I think.
2: Penguin, right? Yeah, uh, Penguin. I, penguin classic. I'll go on Amazon after this and order that and, and get yeah. that because uh, it, it's um, the, the two books. I, I, I would then recommend. I mean, there are thousands one could recommend. Uh, okay. one I've already, we've already mentioned, of course, uh, is the Absolutely. underappreciated yes. ju- j- uh, gem, Islam as a political religion. <gasps> The Future of an Imperial uh, Faith, published by Rutledge. Um, this is, um, yeah, it's an advanced text uh, uh, for sure, um, but uh, it's definitely worth uh, the reading. And another one, even more so than that, it is The Quran and the Secular Mind by uh-huh. the same author, Dr. Shabir Agda. Fantastic. I do have it here. It's, 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 if you've got a copy there, you can show. So no, I, I, can't gave, I gave search away search. my copy, then I ordered got another one and I put it somewhere else and I can't remember where it is. <laughs> yes.
1: Um,
2: yes. But it doesn't matter. It's called The Quran and the Secular Mind, which yes. is one of my all time favorite books, actually, um, because it is an intoxicating uh, um, discussion of, of the coverage of the Quran and its interaction, interrelationship with uh w- western secular liberalism and ideology and uh, mm. written by a, an actual trained philosopher Absolutely. who is also um completely conversant and literate with the western tradition his phd is in yeah. the danish philosopher existentialist philosopher um and he is uh, uh and he's multilingual uh, a polymath basically it's an absolute gem of a book i i, I note that um dr abdul uh, hakim murad or Tim Winter, as he's otherwise known, uh, at Cambridge University, recommends this book, that The, the uh, Crime the Secular Mind, uh, in his recommended reading list, uh, in three sections, the, the introductory, elementary, intermediate range, and advanced books. And Shabit Akhtar's book is on the advanced uh, section of that Wonderful. reading recommended reading list. So I do recommend viewers get hold of that. You won't be mm. disappointed, uh, in my view. It's an outstanding work. And it will help to advance the discussion we yeah, that uh mohammed has kindly shared with us about the origins of contemporary ideologies and philosophies because they didn't come out of nowhere they they have a deep deep history a deep antecedence going back to as you say to the ancient greeks plato and aristotle mm. but all the way through christendom and the renaissance and the enlightenment and uh, and the rise of modernity as well and mm. uh chabi is a specialist in that field i think
3: absolutely absolutely no just have to look here Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, I think, um, uh, Shabir is, I mean, we, we should start up a Shabir Akhtar Appreciation Society, probably
2: very select it'll just be you and me but that's cool i don't know no, <laughs> it won't be. it'll be very popular um, i just want to conclude if i may just by quoting yes. from your article um at the end you say uh, and these are words i think w- which many people can uh, perhaps uh, agree with and identify it is the responsibility of all muslims to walk back from falling prey to the culture wars as the west turns in on itself Uh, the Muslim community should act as an example of people that are confident in what they believe and practice, undisturbed by the noise around them. I like the way you phrase that. It's very, very beautiful. Undisturbed by the noise uh, around them. So Muslims should act as examples of people that are confident in what they believe and practice. And I noticed I actually um, mentioned this earlier on Twitter, and I won't say someone... I'm not going to say who because that would just uh be <laughs> um someone who's a, a fairly senior person in the non-muslim world um uh said that this um that this is a call for I- islamic exceptionalism there's a criticism ah. yes uh, and and um but i don't think it is at all um if, if by that he means someone who, sorry, a community should be inward looking, sectarian, yes. extremist, intolerant uh, and so on. This is not the case. It's not what you're, uh, Muhammad, no. you're asking for. And yeah. indeed, other communities we already mentioned, whether it be Catholics or Orthodox Jews or Christians, should also i i think I- even islamically should be people who are confident in what they believe and practice uh in, in as much as what they practice is good and wholesome mm-hmm. and that should be encouraged so this is not an exclusivist mm-hmm. islamic trope this is something that all uh you know healthy positive communities should look to and mm-hmm. and the alternative is simply to submit to the uh the ever encroaching ideology of secular liberalism mm. which demands total and absolute and unquestioned obedience and submission um, that's the alternative i think
3: no i agree i agree in fact when you said islamic exceptionalism it's a slightly different context oh, really? oh, yeah. but shadi hamid's book islamic exceptionalism is is actually a very good read um, I mean, Shadi, Shadi Hamid is, is you know, a, a very difficult person to, uh, to place. Well, he's, a, he's an American liberal, so he's a self-professed liberal. Uh, but uh, I think he writes quite fairly when, he, when it comes to Islam. He did his PhD uh, thesis was on uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Tunisia, I think it was. And um, I his argument is that it, it's a really great argument his argument is look you can't strip away politics from islam because the founding moment mm. of islam was deeply political mm. the prophet and the sahaba were politicians they were in the in the contemporary yeah, sense yeah, absolutely they were running
2: it's so, actually if you could just uh, google now the constitution of medina it's a yeah. thing by the way it's not yeah. a, a and you'll yeah. see the wikipedia article it explains the the first established muslim community It had a polity mm-hmm. it was a state with a head of state if you like and uh, and laws and a community and an Ummah, which included the Ummah, the muslim Ummah, included jews christians and non uh, uh, and non-people in the book as part yes. of that community whose rights religious rights particularly were guaranteed by law by what we would now call sharia mm-hmm. um and this was the first Islamic state. i don't want to use the word inachron- anachronistically, but you're yeah. absolutely right. The, pol- the political dimension is intrinsic to a flourishing normative Muslim community. It's not some kind of exceptionalist discourse. It's it's the very DNA of the religion itself, uh, and hence uh, when we see Shabbat Akhtar's book, Islam the Islam as political religion. So.
3: Fantastic. Well, no,
2: really. Okay, well well, thank you very much uh in indeed, uh Mohammed Jalal, for uh your incredibly uh, interesting, uh inspiring and uh educating um talk on the timeline. Um and um I don't know what else to say. Oh, I, oh, I, I I'll link yeah. a whole bunch of stuff in the description below, uh, not least the article itself, of course, um, which uh is definitely it's not not it's not actually very long, it's it's fairly quick to read and it's a nice summary of the the themes that you covered in this much longer uh, discourse. So thank you very much Mohammed, for your time. Uh, it's,
3: it's been a pleasure and and uh, actually I had my my powerpoints uh, my slides were slightly longer than uh, what we ended up uh, discussing, you know, quite quite understandably. So I may make that available on my website thinkingmuslim.com. Ah. Uh so people if they okay. want to if you want to download the the broader PowerPoint with, with some, some greater explanation, uh, you're welcome to just go over to, to the website, inshallah.
2: Well, I'll link to your, your website and then there'll be a further connection. Fantastic. Thank you Good. very much. Good. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mohammed.
3: Until next time. <laughs>
0: when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time, visit a new state of mind.